I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as slackers, delinquents, franchises, and director's bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. I'm so excited that we're finally covering this director or writer because we've wanted to cover this one for a long time. Yeah. Some say he's the voice of a generation. Absolutely. And he had films about a gang imprisoned, the stalking of high school teenagers in Illinois, and he made a certain red car very famous. We, of course, can only mean one writer-director, and that is John yeah. Hughes. The porno guy? Wait, what? No, wait, that's John Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> We are recording this episode on March the 28th of 2021, and it'll be out on April the 1st. Let's break out the uh, announcements and news and whatnot before we get into our films. We know that our order got kind of out of whack because we went from a screenplay writer to a director screenplay writer, but we had to because the timing was perfect right now. Of course. Because of the date. This is the week that The Breakfast Club spent the day in detention 37 years ago. Hey, 37. That's a good number. (laughs) We're just a couple of days off, (laughs) but that's all I have for announcements. As far as news goes, In Search of Darkness Part 2 is coming out on Shudder in April. Yeah. Super excited for that. That first one was awesome. Absolutely. Evan Peters is going to play Jeffrey Dahmer in Ryan Murphy's Monster on Netflix. I'm actually kind of surprised that he did it because I've seen interviews with him before where he he said that like he had to take little American horror story breaks because he always gets asked to play fucked up crazy characters. And like, he doesn't like getting his head in that dark place to do that because he's just like a chill, laid back, nice guy normally. And then he decided to be Jeffrey Dahmer. That's going in deep. (laughs) I could see him doing it though. So absolutely. Speaking of American Horror Story, season 10 finally had the title released, and it's going to be double feature, and it's two different horror stories. Okay. Which I kind of feel like every season has multiple things going on at once, but hey, this is somehow different. Hey, they're going to let us know there's clearly two A plots. Oh, okay, okay. (laughs) Wellington Paranormal is coming to the United States finally. I think it's going to be on FX. Nice. Boys from County Hell is coming out on Shutter next month, and it looks like if Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright were Irish and decided to make a vampire movie, and it looks like it's going to be pretty funny. Yeah, it lo- it's definitely worth giving a chance. It, it looks like more than a meh, so that's a good thing. This one, God, I still don't know that many people who remember this movie, but I love The Last Starfighter that was directed by Nick Castle, who played The Shape, right? <laughs> but that was one of my favorite movies as a kid. And they just released a concept art sizzle reel. And the concept art looks really cool to see, like, the ideas they have for it. And it's the original writer teamed up with Gary Witta, who I've been reading his work by accident for the longest time. He used to be the editor-in-chief of PC Gamer Magazine back in the day. No shit. But now he does books and scripts, but he did, like, Star Wars Rogue One and stuff like that. So he's nerd enough to do it right. So um, we'll just have to see how it goes. But I hope the, the movie gets to actually come out. Yeah, if it's a legit sequel, uh, I will be fucking stoked. This was kind of interesting. I like Netflix and Shudder making horror movies, and we have people like Flanagan, for example, who makes a lot of Netflix stuff, but we don't get commentaries and stuff like that anymore with it being streaming, right? Yeah. I'm sure they could put it on as a separate audio track. It's just nobody's thought to do that yet. 
Well, Flanagan got together with the commentary cast and recorded a commentary track for Gerald's game that everyone can listen to for free online. No shit. Yep. Just Google the commentary cast and Gerald's game and it'll come up. Hopefully it's a trend and we see more of this. Yeah. And the last one I wanted to say is we were kind of excited on the, I think it was the last episode where I was talking about Paramount rebooting Paranormal Activity and they've now removed it from all release schedules. No, no. So I don't know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) I'm assuming because they haven't quite figured out how they want to do theatrical release and streaming release and and this and that. And I don't know. Some people just aren't willing to bite the bullet. Disney finally gave in and uh, Black Widow is going to come out on Disney Plus and in theaters. They just kept pushing it back, like hoping that the world would go back to normal. And they finally figured out it's not, I guess. Yeah. But that was it for my news. Did you uh, have anything to add? Uh, No, I worked a lot and didn't read shit. Fantastic. I have a few updates and corrections from the last episode. One, I want to apologize for the perpetual frog I had in my throat the entire time. I don't think my allergies liked me going from Florida back to the South with pollen on everything. And uh, I couldn't talk normal for like a week. (laughs) Of course, I'm not doing much better today after coming out in my car being green and taking my child out for uh, Boy Scout stuff. But here we are. I wanted to say that Christina Annapal played the fairy Morella in true blood which was the fairy that andy hooked up with and knocked up to make all the fairy kids so she wasn't one of the fairy kids she was the fairy mom okay and the last note i have was you said you were going to discuss the r versus pg-13 of cursed and i don't think we circle back to that yeah i really didn't want to do a full breakdown it was basically just less gore and less f-bombs but it was more of the whole early 2000s bullshit that we've come back to many times. And this was one of the ones where they came in and said, oh, no, we got to go over the top West Craven. We're going to shoot this shit four times and then we're going to neuter it before we release it. <laughs> like, yeah, just just how every almost every decision made by the by the studio was uh, the wrong decision. Somebody please remake this movie with Kevin and Wes's original vision. Yes. And I want Rick Baker to work with Canby. Yes. Let Rick Baker make the werewolf and can be do the rest of the effects like the wounds and, and bodies and stuff. Yep. And as far as what we watched, I actually got to dip in and watch a good bit of stuff. I watched Uncle Peckerhead. Yay. Which was surprisingly awesome. I love that movie. I enjoyed it. The frog has come back to my throat. I hear <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie, hell, I don't even remember how I watched it. Amazon, maybe it's on something. Yeah, it's on some streaming service. I didn't have to pay extra for it, but it's really funny. It's got good gore. If you've ever been a band that's gone on tour or played a show out of town before, there's lots of uh, art imitating real life in there. And um, I don't know, like the Uncle Pecker had the character himself was probably my favorite part, but <laughs> yeah, it's a really well-made movie. I'm glad I watched it. Yeah, that movie was so much fun. I checked out that I am Lisa movie that I told everybody was coming out and uh, I'm glad I did. Cause I can tell you all to not watch it. Oh, it was the one that was the uh, revenge movie, but the girl is a werewolf. And I was like, yes. And it's another one of those movies by a werewolf. She gets different color eyes and some pointy teeth. And that's it. And some claws. Yeah. Never actually turns into a werewolf. The plot's nonsensical. It doesn't really Makes sense. I mean, what happens to the girl to make her want to do revenge is tragic. And uh, the characters, some of them were interesting enough, like Lisa herself. But I don't know. The movie just kind of fell flat with me. All right. I'll save it for a shitty movie Sunday. (laughs) Yeah. I watched The Dark and the Wicked on Shudder because I kept hearing great things about it. And it's made by 
the guy that made The Strangers, and it wasn't a bad movie, but it felt like, I don't know, I want to say Ari Aster light. <laughs> like, I don't know. It, it was very reminiscent feeling of, say, Hereditary, but it didn't have it like Hereditary had it. Nah, okay. You might would still like it. Like I'm, I still say anybody who has Shutter watch the movie. It was a, it was a well made movie, but I don't know. It's like definitely very much in that Ari Aster wheelhouse of like the the family trauma and this is going on and the family being tortured and it being slightly supernatural or extremely supernatural by the end. And I don't know. I just feel like it's kind of hard to step into that arena right now if you're not going to bring your like A plus game. You yeah. Know? All right. And I watched the Night Stalker documentary on Netflix. And that's the uh, Richard Ramirez documentary, which I've, you know, read or heard or seen several of those. But this one was done in an interesting way. It was from the cops' perspectives the whole time and the way they were trying to track them and hunt them down and follow the evidence. Yeah. And it had information in it that I had never heard before in other documentaries. So, yeah, this is a good production. I, I watched a lot of it with the wife. And non horror related. I watched Coming to America, like the sequel. Dear God, why? It was hilarious. Like the IMDb reviews shit on it so bad. My wife and I liked it. And everybody's like, I could have done it without Wesley Snipes in this movie. I'm like, he was my favorite part. What the fuck are <laughs> you talking about? I don't know. I thought it was funny and a really good throwback to the original movie. And they had everybody back except for the mom because she had passed away in real life. Yeah. But everybody came back and they threw them in there in some way. But it was a pretty funny movie. I'm not saying I could watch it like every week or anything, but. See, I've only seen the trailer and the trailer was just, it it did not excite me. I don't know. I just remember watching the original one. Like, it seems like it was on TV every other weekend or something. Yeah, like TBS or something. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was a nice little throwback to go and see it. And, And they did a good job. Eddie Murphy said that he has an idea for a third one, but. He wants his character to be like 75 or 76 or something in the movie, and he doesn't want them to age him, so he wants to wait till he's actually that age to do it. Oh, damn. We'll have to <laughs> so, wait and see how serious that was. <laughs> and uh, Disney Plus is still knocking it out the park with the TV shows because Falcon and the Winter Soldier started, and it's badass, and it's crazy watching TV shows with AAA movie industrial light and magic special effects. It's like just mind blowing to watch a TV show and you're like, yeah, it looks like those dudes are flying and fighting uh, Apaches in the air. Nice. Yeah. It's just crazy to see like that level of spe- like star Wars Avengers level special effects in a TV show. Take that sci-fi. I know. I know. <laughs> What'd you see? Um, it has been a boring stretch for me. I've only got one thing of note and that is the reckoning. Neil Marshall's return to horror. It's out. Yeah. Holy shit, I would have watched that before this one if I would have known that. Because of you being you, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, I really don't want to say anything <laughs> about it yet. Okay. Because I don't want to plant any seeds, good or bad. I'm just going to watch it. Yeah, yeah. Just just watch it. and Because I, I would like to discuss it, but you need to watch it first. But that's it. Okay. Um, I've seen bits and pieces of some shit that was uh, either so bad that I walked away or did something else or uh, walked in and then back out of. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and that's it, man. It's been a busy fucking couple of weeks. I'm glad I was actually able to fit in a few extra films to talk about this time because it's usually reversed and I was able to fill the gap this time. <laughs> but uh, I guess let's just go ahead and dive into the show then. Let's talk about John Hughes. Here we go. He was born February 8th of 1950 in Lansing, Michigan, but he grew up in Northbrook, Illinois, outside of Chicago, which used to be called Shermer. Whoa, is that the true origin of that? Yes. Okay. 
He was really big into music and film, and he used it as an escape to get away from things growing up, which so many people that work in music and film (laughs) did as a child, right? Yep. And he was more into music, honestly, and wanted to get into the music industry in some way, but he knew he was a great writer. Like, he he loved to write, right? So he used that to get into film to make him closer to music. Yep. So it's kind of a neat way to do it. He graduated from high school, started college, and dropped out really early on. I don't even know what he was going to school for, right? (laughs) Because this is one of those famous directors and writers with no film school training, right? And... He started out selling jokes to comedians that were famous at the time, such as Rodney Dangerfield and I think Joan Rivers and stuff like that. So he would write them jokes and sell them, right? Okay. And then he got a job creating ads. I could not find out if that was like print ads and magazines or commercials or what, right? But it could have been anything back then in like the the 60s and 70s, right? Yeah. And in the 70s, he landed a gig writing for the National Lampoon magazine. So he would write comedy stories in there, which, you know, ended up spawning film franchises that he wrote and directed for, right? Yep. And I'm going to go over his body of work here in a minute, so I'm not going to linger there too much. (laughs) But he began directing movies that he wrote, obviously, in the 80s, and he did this into the early 90s. And at that point, he continued to write films and... At some point, he just kind of got sick of the business and shunned the public a little bit and became a bit of a recluse. He he bought some land out in the country outside of Chicago. I think it was actually a farm. And he yeah. like worked on the farm, belling hay and, and taking care of animals with his wife. And, and he just he just stayed there. And all of his friends said that they know he kept writing for a while and they assume he wrote a couple of movies a year that are probably stockpiled in a box somewhere. Yeah. And he lived his life that way uh, until he unfortunately passed away in August of 2009. He was in New York. It's kind of a sad story. He flew to see a son who had just had a brand new grandson. I believe he got to see the baby. And then the next morning he got up and went for a walk and collapsed and had a heart attack. They died in the hospital. So it's a little sad things go to see a a newborn baby in the family and, and, and you lose somebody. That's nuts. A few things that I found interesting and took notes on. He's more of a writer than a director. Like he's written way more things than he directed, but it was also like his passion. He could always just write and he had very interesting ways to approach that. And he started directing after he wrote his first couple of movies because he felt like his visions weren't staying intact. Like directors weren't doing things the way he wanted it to be after he wrote it. Yeah. So that's why I took charge. But he would come up with characters for his films and he would flesh them out on paper a bit and have an idea of an actor or actress or a type of actor or actress that he wanted. And when they would find that actor, he would get to know them and see their style and find out their personality and then adapt the character and tailor it to the actor. So the character and the actor would kind of merge into becoming one person. And he felt like that was a great way to get a performance out of, out of the actor. If the character was more like them, right? Yeah. Then definitely always in his writing character driven work, no matter how serious or how comedic. So that's a huge part of understanding that. Yeah. He said one time in an interview that he had the rhythm of the writing from music. (laughs) He liked writing movies off of music. Like sometimes he would hear a song and it would give him an idea for a scene. So he would write the scene to that song and then write the movie around it. Yep. 
And like I said, he was real big into the music industry, so it was kind of neat that he did that. And if you think about his films, they always have at least one super iconic song in them, right? Yeah. He listened to a lot of 80s new wave that he was listening to before anybody had ever even heard it in the States. Yeah. He was real big in a British rock, huge Beatles fan too, right? Yeah. And I don't know if you've got this part in your notes. I just, from listening to some interviews, he was actually helped get publishing deals to get music into the United States that he wanted to use and actually ended up setting (laughs) up a record label because of it. Yep. Made his own record label because it'd make it easier to make a soundtrack. Exactly. Which is really cool. Did you, did you see the interview where he was like, so I played in a band and if you're in a band and you're not good, what do you play? <laughs> and he's like, rhythm guitar. I played rhythm guitar. Okay. <laughs> I didn't see that one, which is kind of odd. It's really sad. There's not a whole lot of interviews with John Hughes. No, there's not. He seemed to be pretty reclusive. Like the the stuff I could dig up on him was like just the same handful of things over and over again. You can find behind the scenes footage of his first few films. And that's around the time he would do interviews and stuff regularly. And he seemed so happy. And then you could see interviews as his career progressed a little bit. And he seemed to get more and more like sad and depressed. And it's because he never really liked the Hollywood system. He said that when he started with National Lampoons, they had full control over everything they were doing, right? And by the time he hit the big leagues, he would have to sit in a boardroom with a whole committee of people with his script that he wrote or a screenplay that he wrote. And people would just be vetoing them and changing characters and scenes. And the movie wouldn't end up the way he envisioned it. And he didn't like that. And that's kind of what pushed him away and made him stop directing and just start writing screenplays and selling them. You know, that really sucks because maybe maybe if he had if it was a decade later when he was in his career, the indie studios would have been more of a thing right. and he could have, could have held control, but you're absolutely right, man. You can, you can definitely see that, that, uh, of his babies being ripped away from him and not really having yeah. another place to go with it. And it's really interesting. You can see some of the directors he teamed up better with because home alone was directed by Chris Columbus, right? Yep. And written by John Hughes, of course. And my son actually watched Ferris Bueller with me last night. Oh, really? Seven. He'd never seen it before. I thought he'd like it. I, I wanted to watch it for a third time before the episode. And um, he sat down and watched it with me, and he would start pointing out my seven-year-old similarities to that in Home Alone. <laughs> oh, I, and, can, I can see that now. Yeah, and it, it's neat seeing it through like the eyes of a kid figuring that out. I didn't let him watch Breakfast Club with me because, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he loves Home Alone. That's one of his his favorite movies. So Okay. I think Chris Columbus was a good pairing with him. But like I said, he he quit directing because the industry burned him out and he wanted to just write. And many of his close friends in interviews after he passed away said that they felt like a piece of him died every time somebody changed his work or botched one of his stories. No. And like I said, he took a break from film altogether and ran a farm with his family. And since he loved to write, there's, probably a treasure trove somewhere that his wife has. And just like Stephen King, he wrote under a nom de plume of Edmond Dantes, which was a character from the Count of Monte Cristo. But oh. he wrote movies under a, a different name and you can pull those up on uh, IMDb as well. They're, they're big movies as well. So I didn't know that. I'm going to go over his body of work. I say briefly, but we'll see how brief this ends up being because <laughs> he's got a, he's got a rather large body of work. I don't even know where I want to start on this. I'm only going to say the bigger ones. He wrote Mr. Mom in 83. I would say that was one of his first big ones, right? Yep. National Lampoon's Vacation, 16 Candles, 
Breakfast Club, European Vacation, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Everybody knows these movies, right? Yeah. <laughs> Some kind of wonderful planes, trains, and automobiles. He was a huge friend of John Candy's. They were like best friends, and you can tell that in, in that movie as well. The Great Outdoors, Uncle Buck. God, how many of these movies did I grow up on? I know, right? <laughs> Christmas Vacation, Home Alone, Dutch, Curly Sue. I think the the Beethoven movies were him, but they were under Edmund Dantes. This is the screenplay writer. Oh, okay. Home Alone 2, if I didn't say that already. And it starts to teeter off a little bit there. There's lots of like sequels or, or TV versions of things. And as a director, this list is much shorter, but you can really get a feel for the guy if you see which ones of his projects he chose to direct. So he directed 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, She's Having a Baby, Uncle Buck, and Curly Sue. Okay. And all of those, except for She's Having a Baby, I don't know if I've ever seen that one, was a huge part of my childhood and teenage years and whatnot growing up. Yeah. Those first few movies I said, actually, I think he almost always had the movies come out in February. I saw an interview with him. He's like, all my movies come out in February. I'll probably have another one next February. But <laughs> yeah, 16 Candles, 84, Breakfast Club, 85, Weird Science, 85, Ferris Bueller, 86, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, 87, She's Having a Baby, 88, and Uncle Buck, 89. That's a run, man. I know. And then he had a Curly Sue in 91, so there's a little bit of a gap. And I didn't go in full chronological order. I went with written by and then directed and written by. But there was things being written that he didn't direct in the middle of those that I said as well. So very active when he was um, making his movies. And they very much had a real depiction of teen life in high school, which was something that people didn't really have the balls to do yeah. until he stepped in and did it. And if you think about it, he's basically influenced generations of filmmaking to, to take that point of view and in different aspects as well. Like we often quote things from that dumbass movie, not another teen movie. Right. Yeah. But so much of that is based off of, um, just John Hughes, John Hughes isms or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like the, it's like the eighties horror shit. Like this, this man set up the, the teenage coming of age ensemble comedy tropes, like almost single handedly. And I didn't put it in my notes, but this is the guy that created the brat pack. Yep. And both the films that we're covering here today were selected for the national film registry by the library of Congress for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. So it's hard to get in that uh, that that category there, and he did it at least twice. I didn't look for all of his movies, but those are the two that we're covering today. Um, and yesterday, I watched both of these with a twenty-something-year-old who thought that they were both slow and boring, and doesn't understand why anyone likes these movies. Damn, really, <laughs> really? But that that just goes to show you what what time can do. My seven-year-old like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Come on. <laughs> well, but but there's also, there's definitely some hardcore nostalgia factor um, for people our age and around our age. Um, and then there's some people that just aren't into X, Y, or Z. Um, so there's probably yeah. some of that that goes into it. But younger people that I've talked to, I've talked to younger people and said The Breakfast Club, and they're like, what's that? And I'm like, are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? It's like, have you heard of Not Another Teen Movie? Yeah, that movie's hilarious. And you want to slap them. <laughs> right. It's like that movie couldn't exist without this. My wife and I watch the Pitch Perfect movies all the time. Those are like some of her favorite movies. And okay. in the first one, the main guy, God, I can't think of his name right now. But the the main guy in the movie has a crush on Anna Kendrick, and he's real big into movies, and she's not. And he's telling her about like how music makes movies. And 
he finds out she's never seen the breakfast club. And he's like, I don't know if I can like you anymore. Right. <laughs> and, and that's kind of interesting because they're a decade or so younger than us, I think. Yeah. So I feel like it, it probably just depends how you were brought up or where you lived. If, if you were introduced to that or not. Right. Like people that have parents like my kids do, they're like, you got to watch the shit. Right. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, I mean, of course I do have to sometimes explain how things were in the eighties and whatnot, but and and he has a lot of movies that we would love to cover, and we'd have to do that at another time because we're just doing two of them today. Yeah. But without further ado, I guess I'll dive into 1985's The Breakfast Club. The first thing I want to do is go over the title because I was wondering where the fuck the name came from, and I was actually really easily able to find that out. Okay. And one of John's friends had a kid that attended a high school that I didn't write down the name, but if you got in trouble, they would give you early morning detention before class. And they were called the breakfast club. Holy shit. Cause they'd have to meet up in the morning for detention. And in this movie, they have to spend eight hours of detention on a Saturday, obviously, because they wouldn't be able to do it during a normal school day, but they do meet first thing in the morning at breakfast time. So I'm assuming that's why they, they called themselves that. And maybe this school, this fictional school in the movie of, of Shermer high has the breakfast club and early morning detention, but these kids were all in for bad things. Right. So they had to get like eight hours of detention. They couldn't get one hour of detention. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And I almost blew right past the cast. So let me fix that real quick. <laughs> I'm going to try to not, you know, stick on this too long. There's not that many people in the movie, but they're all pretty famous. And uh, I took shitty notes on what they're in. So I'm going to have to cherry pick really quick. <laughs> we have Emilio Estevez as he's accredited as Andrew, but they call him Andy a lot in the movie. So we're going to have to see how I actually say it. And I'm not even going to pull his shit up. I always think of him from the Young Guns movies as Billy the Kid. I think of him from the Mighty Ducks movies, right? As, as Coach <laughs> Gordon Bombay. Um, minute work. I think yeah. of that movie. That's a that's a great one. Um, Josh, help me out here. There's got to be some other heavy Re hitters, right? Repo Man. You know, it's not a heavy yep. hitter, but uh, Repo Man. So I think he even fucking popped up in the Outsiders. But I feel like everybody of that generation was in the <laughs> Outsiders at some point. Probably Loaded Weapon, dude. How could we forget <gasps> about that? Oh yeah. And of course, he's brother to Charlie Sheen and son to Martin Sheen, and he looks just like his dad now. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, for, for anyone who doesn't know that fact. <laughs> and we got Paul Gleason as Richard Vernon, and he passed away in 06. Oh, damn. And he did some big movies. He was in Die Hard. He was in Trading Places. I think he even reprised his role in Not Another Teen Movie. He did, in fact, do that. He was in ridiculous amounts of TV shows. The guy's been acting since the early 60s. So he was in a bunch of stuff. I can't picture anybody else playing his character. And I don't know. He was one of those guys. He, he just played lots of roles. Like he could be a tough guy, very easy. And he could also be like the, the psychiatrist character. Like he could bounce between the two pretty easy. Yeah. Anthony Michael Hall. Now here's an interesting one. Because this guy <laughs> started out always playing the small, tiny nerd kid. And then in his adult career, got jacked and ended up playing like military generals and stuff like that, which know, just right? blows my mind. <laughs> and God, it's hard to go over his movies without just like John Hughes, John Hughes, John Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> he was rusty in the original National Lampoon's Vacation. So he's yep. the original rusty, right? 16 Candles, weird science. I'll never forget him in that. Damn, yeah. Edward Scissorhands, that's when he first started playing a jerk. If you remember, he's the bully boyfriend. Oh, he's yeah. He's Winona Ryder's boyfriend. He's like the star football player and whoops his ass, right? 
I think that was probably the beginning of it. And a little bit more genre. He, he's done a bunch of shit, but he was the star of Stephen King's The Dead Zone, the TV show. Yep. That was his baby for quite some time. I remember him on Warehouse 13. That's a show I got to go back and finish. I never finished that one. And he's popped up in all sorts of other stuff, but most recently he's going to be Tommy Doyle in Halloween Kills. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this has to be alphabetical order. I don't know why I would have put John Kapalos next, but uh, <laughs> he plays Carl, the janitor in the movie, and he's the only other character besides Mr. Vernon and the kids in the movie. And he's been in so much shit, but like he was recently in Shape of Water. He's in the Umbrella Academy. <laughs> like, Oh, damn. He's one of those guys. I don't know. He always plays like a supporting character, but he always kind of stands out. And if you just look at his face, you'll know him. I think he was on Justified. Like he was on a bunch of stuff. So it's weird because a lot of these actors weren't in like a lot of uh, genre flicks outside of this little window here. Right. So you don't want to hone over it too much. Yeah. Judd Nelson always stands out to me, but I also can never remember anything he was in. Right. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, and he, honestly, he stands out primarily because of this film, but he did St. Elmo's fire, which I don't think that was a huge movie, but it was definitely a brat pack movie. He was in new Jack city. There was these, um, God, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the movie right now. There were these movies. They're not really slasher movies, but he was an author that was a serial killer in a cabin by the lake. And he would kill women and hide their bodies in the lake. It was on like USA or something like it was made for TV. That sounds vaguely familiar. Those were kind of interesting, you know, as good as like made for TV murder movies were. And he's done cartoon character voices. Hell, he was one of the Transformers at some point. Oh, nice. And last two cast members here, we got Molly Ringwald, which everybody knows from Brat Pack movies primarily, right? Yeah. Because she's in this, 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink. She's had a pretty long career as well. She was on the uh, Riverdale TV show recently. She might even still be on there. I'm... Really behind on that, but everybody knows who Molly Ringwald is, and I feel like I don't have to go through it. I do want to say original The Stand. I remember her being on Yes. That. Yeah, yeah. She was Franny on that. But the last character is Ali Sheedy, which she's an interesting one in this movie. And she has two movies that I loved as a kid, and, and I can't forget her from. They're Short Circuit. Yeah. And War Games. Well, it's War Games for me, man, all the fucking way. I can't think of anything else off the top of my head, but... Nope. Um, <laughs> She's one of those people she's been in probably just about every TV show or a movie somewhere in there. And she's, she's done a lot of flicks, but that's the cast of this movie and what a cast they were. Like it's a, <laughs> it's a great ensemble cast in this movie. And uh, I guess unless you got any questions or anything to add for me, Josh, I'm going to dive into the movie best I can. Let's do it. It's a very dialogue heavy movie guys. So you're going to have to uh, bear with me on this one. We start out with a rocking theme song. And we see a black screen pop up with some text on it. And it says, and these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. David Bowie. And right as you're finished reading it and trying to think about what it means, the entire background shatters like it's something flying through glass. Is that from a song? I'm not sure if it's from a song. And I want to say, I don't know if I've ever actually seen the full R-rated version of this movie. It's all watched it several times for this episode. I think it was always on TV when I watched it as a kid because <laughs> I do not remember any F-bombs, let alone all the F-bombs in this movie. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. We get a voiceover from Anthony Michael Hall, and he says that it's Saturday, March 24th, 1984, Shermer High School, Illinois, and 
we get to hear him reading part of the final written essay they have to work on in detention. And it basically says that they know what they did was wrong to get them there in detention. And they shouldn't have to explain who they are because the teacher, Mr. Vernon, only sees them as a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess, and a criminal. And that this is the simplest terms with definitions that he could, you know, lump them into, right? And he says, this is how they saw each other that morning because they were all brainwashed to think that way too. And it's interesting voiceover to hear because that basically hit every high school stereotype, right? Yep. And that's how the world sees them as kids going through high school and not realizing that they're, you know, real people having problems too, right? They're going to take care of your old ass. <laughs> exactly. Or they're not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But the voiceover happens as we see a camera going through an empty school and it's showing various things. You can see like the the stage in the theater and the cafeteria, but there's a few things in note that show up. One of them is a locker that's busted open and completely charred on the inside and the contents of it are charred on the ground as well. So obviously there was some kind of fire and you got to pay attention, but it cuts to a plaque and it's man of the year and it has all the years. And the middle character is Carl Reed, 1969. The janitor. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He was high school man of the year when he was there. Wow. He went far. <laughs> well, I think that's the point of the movie though, to just put things in perspective for you. Like he was the cool kid and he's the school janitor. Yeah. Yeah. True. true. But if you pay attention to his character, he seems like he, he wants to be there. Like he's there for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he likes his position, right? But we see all of these parents drop their kids off for Saturday school, and we get a feel for their home environments from their parents, right? Well, except for John Bender, because he walks into school. So now if this was the screenplay, it would say, you know, library interior day and uh, get ready, folks, because this is where we're going to spend most of the time of this film. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to be honest, I'm going to stick real hard on the first 20 minutes of this movie because it's a lot of important things happening, a lot of important dialogue. And then I'll probably end up blitzing through most of the rest. Of the <laughs> we see Mr. Vernon come in and he tells the kids that they have eight hours to ponder the error of their ways. He doesn't want any talking, moving or sleeping. And they also have to write an essay that is no less than a thousand words explaining who they are. Right. Which we heard a bit of that on the voiceover at the beginning. Yeah. Not one word repeated a thousand times either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You can't say, I'm very, 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 very sorry. (laughs) Um, You get the vibe that Andy or Andrew, he's accredited as Andrew, but his varsity jacket says Andy. And a lot of them call him Andy, but they also call each other by their last name. So we're going to see Andy or Andrew. I'm talking about Emilio Estevez. But we get the vibe that he and Claire know each other very well. Bender's the school outcast. Brian is the introverted ass-kissing genius. And Allison is... Weird. Yeah. Who the fuck is she? (laughs) She's that character. She's one of the funniest parts of this fucking movie, quite frankly. Yes. But after giving these instructions, Vernon lets him know that his office is right across from the library door. He's going to keep the door open. He doesn't want any monkey business, I think is what he says. Yeah. And on his way out of the library, Bender asks him if Barry Manilow knows that he raids his closet. (laughs) And we get one of the most famous quotes of this film. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. I love this quote. It's referenced so much in film. And I'll be honest, I use this a lot, like not in a real situation. It's like, it's just a good quote. Yeah. It's ridiculous. He's doing the devil's horns, but it, it works, right? Yeah. But with Vernon gone, we can see Bender survey all the kids in the room. 
And then he starts talking shit and he starts off funny until he tells Brian to go lock the door so they can go get the prom queen impregnated. Slon's kind of fucked up. And I don't remember that one as a kid. <laughs> That's one that as a kid I thought was funny. And as an adult, I'm like, that's a rape joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I have it later in my notes, but Molly Ringwald did an interview and she talked about watching this movie with her teenage daughter for the first time. And when I get to another part in the movie, I'm going to reflect back on that. But because even at the time she wasn't really thinking about it, but now she's like, what the fuck were we doing? <laughs> yeah. Claire's obviously not amused by this. And we can see that Andy's really protective of her and he's already threatening to beat Bender's ass, right? And Bender continues to try to get a rise out of both Claire and Andy. And I finally remembered where I got the term hot beef injection. <laughs> God, when you're a teenage boy, you really do talk foul, don't you? But I remember yes. like age 15-ish, like that was a really popular term. And I had no clue where it originated. And I always wonder which one of my friends made it up. Just the way Judd Nelson delivers the line. Hell, the way they deliver all the lines in this movie. Yeah. But Bender wants to get the door closed so that they can have a party, and they all try to talk him out of it, and they start making fun of him now for being an outcast, and he dumps over all of their activity clubs that they're in, and he's making fun of, you know, Andy for being the jock and in all the sports clubs, and, and Claire for being like the prom queen and all these different social clubs, and in the background, Brian is spitting out all the academic clubs then. He's like, I'm in the physics club, I'm in the robotics club, I'm in the math club, and... Bender starts to talk shit like he does for most of the movie. And Claire says that he can't judge them because he doesn't even know their clubs, right? Well, I don't know any lepers either, but I'm not going to run out and join one of their fucking clubs. And Bender asks Brian, I don't remember exactly what he says, but he's like, what are you yammering on about back there? And, and he explains the clubs that he's in. And Bender tries to point out to Claire that the dorks academic clubs are not that different from the cool kid clubs, right? Despite what she thinks it's still social. It's still really cool to the nerdy kids. They're having fun. They get to have parties, right? Like it's just, you're viewing that group differently, but you're really doing the same thing. Yep. And in here we find out that Bender likes to get high cause they're all making fun of him for that. And Andy is a real testosterone driven jockey guy. That's super homophobic, right? Yep. <laughs> Um, Brian has to impress his parents with his academics, right? That's the only way he'll be accepted at home. And Allison doesn't talk at no. all. That's well, what we see from this group in the library. She eeks <laughs> at one point. At <laughs> some point she points at Brian, like she's, her hands a gun and shoots at him because he <laughs> won't stop talking. She's so fun to just watch in the background for like the first third of the movie. Oh, and the other thing we find out is Brian doesn't wear tights. He wears the required uniform. <laughs> Oh, I can't even say it. <laughs> I saw a behind the scenes thing and they were talking about, you don't really get and appreciate Emilio Estevez until you've watched the movie a couple of times. And he's really like the tie that binds the movie together. Like he's the least memorable character on first watch and nobody's favorite necessarily and not talked about a lot, but he has something to do with all of them. He's like the common thread and he really kind of holds them together as the leader and has like a lot of the important things to say. And it's true. Like that does show up more and more as you watch the movie, but yeah. not the first time. Yeah. He is totally the diplomat between the tribes. Good way of putting that, Josh. Yeah. Stole that from uh, SLC punk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hadn't seen that one in a while. But Vernon heads to get some water and Bender sneaks to the door and removes a screw from like the automatic door closing hinge thing. Yeah. So that it won't stay locked open and it slams closed. Right. And Vernon hears the door closed and he comes in pissed and wants to know why the door is closed. And they're all saying that they were just sitting there and it happened. It just slammed shut. And they all start to protect Bender for some reason here. 
Vernon tries to prop the door open with a chair, and Bender's like, sir, that's way too heavy. <laughs> the door slams shut, and he's being a smart ass, but trying to sound helpful. And the kids are all starting to laugh a bit and starting to bond over this, right? Nope. And you can see the camaraderie already starting to build, even though they all try to stop Bender from doing this, but now they all think it's fun. And Vernon makes Andrew get up and help him pull a magazine rack in between the door and the door jam to hold it open. And he hilariously tries to climb over it to get back in the library and trips. <laughs> and Bender's like, sir, sir, isn't that a fire hazard? And uh, Vernon gets pissed at Andy for putting the magazine rack there and makes him move it and sit down. <laughs> Yep, immediately <laughs> blames him like it was his idea or something. <laughs> Vernon and Bender get into it a little bit, and we find out where Bart Simpson got the term eat my shorts. <laughs> Probably. But Bender starts to really piss off Vernon, and he earns an additional seven Saturdays back to back. <laughs> and he's pointing at him with them damn bull horns again, right? Like he's just reminded him, don't mess with the bull, you get the horns. He argues with Anthony Michael Hall because he's like, it's seven, sir. Because <laughs> he rattles off all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's like somewhere in there, it's like questionable that it's eight or something. And he's like, because we got the first one that's here today. We got the. His characters, they're all good in this movie. Like, they are, I man. <laughs> they say some terrible shit. But that's the thing, though. This movie depicts the horror of high school and clicks. Yeah. It really does. Which high school is one of the darkest, most hellish places of all time. I'm so glad I didn't go to a real one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Vernon leaves as Bender delivers this famous scream that I remember when the door slams. That's apparently a fuck you really loud, but I'm pretty sure I had only seen an edited version where he screams. Yeah, because there's a big music build there, too. And uh, I, I bet the TV one that, that we're both so used to. You probably got the big build and the door slam, and then you just hear the you. I just remember like a, ah, or something, you know, but like <laughs> my head could have just done that. Yeah. It might've been a F you, and I just knew I couldn't say it back then. But we get a bit of a time lapse as everyone starts getting bored, and we see Claire's dozing off. Brian's getting wood from staring at her. <laughs> Bender's lighting his boot on fire and then using that to light his cigarette. Allison's cutting off the circulation in her fingers with thread and then makes this awesome like inked landscape drawing complete with dandruff snow that she rains out of her hair onto it. And Andrew tries to keep himself awake doing various stupid shit. And I don't know, I forgot to mention this earlier, but did you notice that when Allison gets dropped off, it's like out of a Bentley or a Rolls Royce or something? Cause yeah. I didn't catch that till like the third time I watched. It. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice ass car and she's riding in the back. So she's also from like a, a fluid family. Hell, she might be the rich kid. You just don't know it. Cause she's like the goth punk chick. <laughs> yeah. But they all pass out in the room on their desks, right? And Vernon comes in and wakes them all up to give them all a bathroom break. They all start to chat with each other a bit, and they all start getting along a little bit better. And we find out that Claire hates her home life and that her parents use her to piss each other off, right? Yep. And while she's telling her sob story, Allison yells, ha, real loud behind her just to break the tension. And everybody starts laughing because she said something, right? Yeah. And we basically find out that they all have very unhappy home lives with their parents, right? Yep. Common thread. But yeah, really with this, this gang of kids here. Yep. Imprisoned in this library for a day. <laughs> but at this point, they finally all actually introduce each other to each other. Just to show how distance the cliques are in school, right? Only Andy and Claire actually knew each other's names before. The other people could have pointed some of them out and said they went to school with me, and that was about it. 
Yep. But Bender then begins to be a piece of shit and starts asking Claire lots of sexual questions, making everyone, especially her, uncomfortable. And Andy comes to her defense again, and Bender gets in Andy's face, and Andy gives Bender a warning. Two hits. Me hitting you, you hitting the floor. Anytime you're ready, pal. Bender tries to swat at Andy, who immediately takes him down, and Bender acts like he can't fight back because he would just kill him. Right. Like, and then he'd have to go to jail and blah, blah, blah. And he tries to act tough with a stiletto switchblade. Right. And he stabs the table next to him and just keeps talking shit. And Andy tells him to leave her alone. And Bender responds that he's just trying to help her out. Right. Like out of her bubble. And if yeah. you pay attention to the background, Allison leans in the frame and steals the knife and puts it in her purse. Yep. <laughs> Uh, oh my god i love that part and here we're introduced to carl the janitor who comes in and they give him a little bit of shit well really it's bender starts giving him shit right and he lets him know that he's the school's eyes and ears because nobody notices him and he's always around sweeping and mopping and he has all the information he sees everybody's papers everybody's notes the trash and he knows everything that's going on and this is all a response to Bender's smart-ass questions about, like, how he's of no consequence, and he's trying to let them know how much of consequence he really can be, right? Yeah. How does one become a janitor? <laughs> right. Brian, I didn't know your dad worked here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, there you go. There's your wise janitor, and that's how he gets all his intel. But the group gets, I guess, reboard, <laughs> and they're all whistling. Yeah, yeah. And they're doing it in unison, and Vernon comes in, and they all stop except for Bender, who goes straight into a. That's <laughs> so funny. Yes. And Vernon informs them that it's lunchtime and they get 30 minutes. So I'm guessing half of their detention day has passed at this point, right? Damn, that was quick. And yeah, I know, I know. And after some persuasion, he lets Andy and Allison go to the faculty soda machine to get everyone a drink. And when Andy asks Allison what drink she wants, she says vodka. She says that she drinks it all the time and she wants to know what he's there for. And he won't give her a clear answer, right? He's like, because I'm a, I'm a star athlete and blah, blah, blah. And everybody does this. And she's like, that's a bullshit answer. Yeah. And she's at least talking now, right? Yep. And there's a deleted scene here. I haven't actually seen it, but I, I read it multiple times and it was like, Bender says he doesn't have any money. So like Verdon pulls out some change and hands Andy, right? Like, and then Claire's like, I only have a 20. Can you break it? And then he like pulls out more change and it like just keeps going. And basically Verdon ended up buying everyone's soda by the end of it. Cause he has to keep pulling money out and handing it to him. Oh, okay. I kind of wish they would have kept it from what I read. But we're cutting in between them going to get the sodas in the library. And in the library, there are more verbal sexual assaults from Bender to Claire. And he teases Brian about being a virgin until she says she thinks it's okay for a guy to be a virgin. And that she likes that. This puts a smile on Brian's face and a confused look on Bender's. Right? <laughs> I'm getting cock-blocked by the nerd? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I don't remember the specific dialogue, but he's like, who have you laid? And he said, you wouldn't know her. She lives in Canada. And it was at the Niagara Falls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she lives in like Canada. That. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. But at this point, the group all gets back together and we get to see what everyone's lunch looks like. Claire brought sushi, right? Which was probably really odd back then. That's how everybody's acting. Yeah. And he has like eight sandwiches, a <laughs> jug of milk. <laughs> 
some fruit and some other shit, right? Because he's like just packing on protein for muscle mass, right? Yep. Brian's mom packed his lunch for him, and it had some soup and PB&J with the crust cut off. Bender does not appear to have a lunch, but he quickly grabs a Coke and chunks it over his shoulder without looking behind him at Allison, who's looking at the table and not at him. And she just quick slings a hand up and catches out of nowhere without looking and sets it down. And I love that part because it's kind of like they just bond together a little bit. Yep. And then Allison makes a pixie dust and Captain Crunch sandwich. Yeah. And she throws the fucking, she throws the olive loaf over her shoulder and it sticks onto the the head of the statue thing <laughs> yeah and that's actually a, a pretty memorable scene to me and i didn't even write it in my notes it's kind of funny i guess because it just always sticks in my head but i always think of that baloney looking shit hanging <laughs> on the um art deco statue that falls you know and it falls to the floor or whatever <laughs> yep but bender starts to point out how perfectly balanced of a lunch bryant's parents sent him with all of the food groups in it And then he decides to start acting out his opinion of Brian's perfect life. And when he's done acting it out, Andy wants to know how Bender's home life is. And he gets up to act this out as well. But it turns into a screaming match between him and his dad, his dad smacking his mother, and then him and his father getting into a violent fist fight. And Andy does not believe it. And he thinks it's all part of his image until Bender starts to show him cigar burn scars on his arm from his dad. And Bender loses it, gets pissed, jumps up and climbs on the stacks and up onto the second floor of the library. And he sits down pissed and um, Claire lets Andy know he shouldn't said all that to him. And he's like, how the fuck was I supposed to know? Right. Like that his life is that bad. Yeah. And that's that's like one of the most important points in the movie to me. I should write this down and say it at the end, but I'll forget because I think I don't think the story's bullshit. Number one, your your stereotypical uh-huh. bull, bully is usually bullied at home and they have no place to act out. So they act out on weaker kids at school or outside of the home. It's normal to, to them. And that's going to get revisited later as well. Yeah. And he this to Bender, he literally just opened up. He literally just did the most honest thing he's done in front of this group and didn't get accepted. So now he's like uber pissed right and i I think it's going to make more sense the way his character starts to bounce back and forth when they get to a later conversation there's a lot of character development in this hour and a half movie that is supposed to be an eight hour day with these kids yeah and just to add on to what you said when andy actually realizes he has a terrible home life he looks at claire and he says how was i supposed to know because he lies so much like when do i know to believe him but when he said that what really stuck out to me does he though (laughs) <laughs> Does Bender really, like has he lied much during all this or is he just stating the facts to everybody now he's being an asshole and a misogynist and a homophobe at times and talking shit but he's not actually flat out lying that, that I call it other than like the I didn't take the screw out of the door to the teacher right? yeah. but I guess he just means like the whole personality he thinks is a lie and, and I mean yeah he's, he's acting like a tough guy but because you get that a bit with the fight they got into right obviously he couldn't fight at all he's used to being able to act tough yeah. and scare people away and Andy just fucking laid him out Right. Yeah. He's all bark. We cut to Vernon. Who's trying to eat his lunch. He's got like a half an orange crammed in his mouth and he's trying to <laughs> dump his coffee thermos. We're trying to pour coffee out of his thermos into his cup and he dumps coffee over all of his food and his clothes. And he has to walk off to clean up. So Bender sneaks out to go to his locker and he brings the whole gang with him. And none of them know why they're actually following him. And they're all aware of this. They're like, <laughs> why are we doing this? You know, because earlier they're trying to stop him from closing a door. And now they're sneaking off with him. Yep. And we see the locker that had the noose on it at the beginning that, that was in the camera painting. 
And you realize that the bottom locker that has the noose on it, when you open it, it's booby trapped and a fucking guillotine <laughs> slams down, right? And then you have to reach past that and hit a button to open the locker up top that's actually Bender's locker. And basically he had a bag of weed that he grabs. And they shut his locker and they start to walk off, except for Allison, who stands there awkwardly for a minute and then steals the padlock off the locker and puts it in her purse. Yeah, that scene makes me like to think that Bender went on to college and eventually became an engineer. Probably a full-blown alcoholic, but at least an engineer. (laughs) On a Bender, right? Yes. But at this point, they're trying to head back to the library, and we get that what I can at best describe as a Scooby-Doo run scene, right? Yeah. Because they're running back and forth through the hallway, sliding, popping in one way and out the other, trying to avoid Vernon, who's walking back to the library slash office area, and they don't want to get caught, right? And they hit a certain point where they can go one of two ways. And Bender explains why they need to go this way. And Andy says, fuck, you know, you're going to get us caught. He takes off running and everybody decides to follow Andy. And then Bender, instead of going his own way, follows Andy as well. Yep. And they run into a locked gate at a hallway and they can't get through. They realize they're fucked. And... Bender says, no, it's just me that's fucked, grabs his <laughs> weed, stashes it in Brian's pants, and takes off yelling and singing, breaking shit in the hallways, until he shows up in the gym shooting basketball with one sneaker on, <laughs> yes. one boot. I don't know why he changed his shoe. And Vernon catches him and grabs him, right? So Bender let everyone else sneak back to the library, and he took the heat for all this, right? Yep. Vernon takes Bender back to the library to get his stuff, and he tells the rest of the gang that Bender's basically going into solitary confinement. And Vernon tells them that he's not funny now, and he wasn't funny Friday when he pulled the fire alarm. And then he asks them what if it had been his home burning, his family on fire, when the, the firemen couldn't come because they were at the school. Better yet, what if it had been his dope that was on fire? Impossible, sir. It's in Johnson's underwear. <laughs> There's so many jokes with their names as well. Like, I love it. He's talking to Brian somewhere earlier in the movie, and he's like, who's your father, Mr. Rogers? And he's like, no, it's Mr. Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? You you just made, you going back to what we were saying earlier about Bender, like, is everything he says a lie? Because right then, that was just brutal honesty, but it was so absurd, Vernon wouldn't believe it. So, yeah, I'm going to go with that. (laughs) (laughs) But the whole group gets a laugh out of this line from Bender because Vernon doesn't even acknowledge it, right? Yeah. And then Vernon publicly humiliates Bender in front of the group and none of them like it. And he then takes Bender and locks him in a storage closet and Vernon lets him know that one day when nobody's around, he's going to beat the shit out of him and he's going to do it so bad and nobody's going to believe Bender because he's a lying sack of shit. And Vernon himself is a respected member of the community. And he actually takes his jacket off and tries to start a fight with Bender to make Bender hit him so he can beat his ass right there. And if you look, Bender is actually very, very frightened. And he's really upset right here. And that's when you know for a fact, if you had any doubt in your mind, his dad beats the shit out of him at home. Yep. And Vernon just turned into his dad to him. And he doesn't know what to do. Yep. 
a lot of stuff I'm going to say for the end, but yeah, you, you know, right then what, what his lot in life is. And luckily Vernon leaves him alone at this point. I guess he feels like he proved his point, but Vernon has to leave his office again to go pop a shit. And Bender sneaks up into the ceiling and starts climbing through, but you can tell he's scared. So he starts telling himself a dirty joke. And right (laughs) as he gets to the punchline, he yells, Oh shit. As he falls through the ceiling and he lands in the second floor of the library. And all the kids are looking around like, what the fuck just happened? He comes walking down the stairs with drywall on him. And he's like, oh, I forgot my pencil. (laughs) But Vernon heard the sound and he pinches the loaf and comes running in the library as Bender hides under Andy and uh, Claire's table. And Vernon wants to know what the ruckus was. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? (laughs) The kids begin to joke and make sounds and cover for Bender. As Bender's peeking up Claire's skirt and her panties, and he sticks his face in her crotch, right? Yep. And she, of course, stops him and crunches his skull with her knees. And this is what I was mentioning earlier about Molly Ringwald watching the movie with her daughter. And she had to explain to her daughter that was an adult actress. I didn't want the scene in the movie at all, but I especially wasn't doing it. So it wasn't my underwear. And her daughter was like oddly okay with it because it wasn't her mom, right? And when you're younger, you don't you don't quite get it. But between that and the sexual assault joke earlier about impregnating her and stuff like that, she was like, there's some fucked up shit that happened in this movie. Yeah. Yes, it's inappropriate, but the one defense that I've seen for scenes like this one and and honestly I, I want to get it is no matter how inappropriate it is, that's what the kind of shit kids did back then too, right? Like it's showing you how oh, fucked yeah. up they are. Right. <laughs> and Claire's obviously like really pissed about it and upset about it, which makes it even more fucked up, but it makes an upcoming scene kind of odd. Yeah. Because Vernon ends up leaving the room. He said he's not going to be made a fool of, and he turns around, he's got an ass gasket hanging out of his pants. (laughs) So they're all getting a good laugh at him leaving after saying that. Except for Claire. She stays pissed, and she smacks the shit out of Bender when he comes up from the table because she feels violated, right? Yep. And Bender goes and gets his weed from Brian and runs off to the back, and Andy tells him he's not doing that shit in here. And then Claire looks like she's rattled, right, from the the incident because – Molly even said in the, the interview that I read, she doesn't know like if he was supposed to have actually gotten up in there or what, because the uh, way she reacts, you know, yeah, she just knows how she was told to react. And uh, so her character looks really rattled, but then looks back towards Bender's direction and gets up and runs off to go smoke weed with him. Right. So it's kind of odd in its own right. And then Brian immediately gets up and goes too, which is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. And then Andy says, fuck it and goes and Allison stays behind. They smoke a joint and Anthony Michael Hall gives us a peek of a scene from the upcoming weird science movie. Cause he's got the sunglasses on and he's talking in that voice. And he does that in weird science when, when they're hanging out with the guys they met at the bar. Right. Yep. That like real froggy voice. It's exactly like that. Yeah. And they all really start to get along here. And Andy ends up walking out of this study room that he was in by himself. And he basically hot boxed the whole room, right? He just yep. walks out of a room of smoke with his own joint and he starts running and doing flips and shit. And it looks like it's him. Honestly, it looks like he did it because he's, a, you know, maybe he was an athlete in school. I don't know. And he ends up dancing and shit. And during all this, we cut to Vernon who has snuck into the school basement to go through the confidential files of the other employees at the school. And he's caught by Carl. <laughs> 
who knows everything that's going on on campus, right? Yep. And he makes Vernon pay him some hush money. But back with the kids in the library, Andy wants to know more about Brian. And Allison starts to spit out Brian's whole life. And they want to know if she's psychic. And she just shows them that she just stole Brian's wallet and gives it back to him, right? Because there wasn't anything in there except for a couple bucks and a beaver photo, right? Yep. We see Andy and Claire going through each other's shit as they're all sitting there. And they're asking each other questions about each other, mainly about relationships. And we find out from Brian that he has a fake ID so that he can vote, of course. Yeah. And Allison's really upset that no one wants to see what she has in her bag. So she dumps out all this crazy shit on the couch. And Brian wants to know if she's going to be a crazy bag lady when she gets older. (laughs) And basically, they find out that Allison wants to run away because her home life is not satisfying to her, right? And that's why she has all this shit in case she has to bail ever. And it's also got random stuff in it that she's been stealing throughout the movie. That too. Yep. And they explain that they all have problems at home and she gets upset and walks away. And Andy goes to have a heart to heart with her. And you can tell that he really wants to help her. And he gets her to admit that her home life is bad. And she seems moved by him actually caring. Right. So we're getting some more personality out of her. And Vernon and Carl are also bonding over several beers in the basement. And Vernon says these kids just keep getting worse and worse every year. And Carl lets them know, no, it's not the kids. It's you, man. You're just getting older and less fun. You originally took this job because you're like, hey, this won't be that bad. I get the summer off. I can party. I got good hours. But then you realized it was hard fucking work. And now, you know, you're taking the piss out of life and you think the kids are changing, but it's just you. Yep. But we cut back over to the kids and they're playing that what would you do for a million bucks game. And we find out that Allison would do anything sexual for free. And she says that her shrink boned her several times when she told him and her parents that she was a nympho. And they circle back to Claire being a virgin again. And Allison says that this is a double-edged sword because if you haven't had sex, you're a prude. And if you have had sex, you're a slut, right? Yep. And the group decides that Claire's just a tease. And they all give her shit until they finally get her to yell and admit that she's a virgin. And then Allison says, yeah, I'm a virgin too. I was lying about all that. I'm not a nymphomaniac. I'm actually just a compulsive liar. And she says, but I think sex is okay if it's with the person you love. Yeah. That's a weird scene because it that's where, where I was talking about earlier where stuff starts to change tone so fast. But it is interesting. It's, it is interesting to actually hear more out of the Allison character. And then by the time it gets to the end, it's like, well, should we believe any of that? <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about tonal changes. We're about to have two dark scenes coming up. Okay. Yep. But they start to explain how they're all weird and quirky and have their own things going on. And Andy's issues that he can't think for himself, they say, right? And he admits that he's in detention for taping a nerdy friend of Brian's butt cheeks together. And when he ripped the tape off, it tore hair and skin out. Right. Yep. And he said he did this to make his father proud is the only reason why he even did it. And he felt like shit because of it, because this made his dad happy to hear that he bullied a nerd, but this kid has to go home to his father and admit to his father what happened and just be humiliated. This really fucks Andy up. And he doesn't even know how to begin to apologize for something like that to the kid. Yep. That's, that's a good scene out of Emilio too. Cause I mean, he's like full on crying and shit. A lot of crying coming up here. <laughs> we find out that Brian got an F in shop class cause he couldn't make a lamp. And that even if he makes straight A's in everything else, he'll still have a B average. And that makes him stupid and a failure to his family. This is serious, Josh. <laughs> you know why I'm laughing. <laughs> 
But they all start to name their weird talents that they can do after a debate on if shop is for idiots or for engineers, right? Because <laughs> Bender's a shop guy. <laughs> yep. And they all have, you know, talents that they spit out. And, and Bender wants to know what Claire's is. And she can apparently put lipstick in her bra and then lean over and put her lipstick on without hands. And then Bender makes fun of her. And she finally gets really upset with him. And he explains her perfect life, and she tries to explain to him how it's not so perfect like everybody thinks from looking at her. And they try to make a pact to never, ever become their parents. And Allison says that everyone's going to turn into their parents eventually because their heart dies. <laughs> um, Brian wants to know what's going to happen on Monday. He said, I consider you all friends now. Do you guys feel the same way? And they all say yes. And... They start trying to act like, yeah, yeah, we'll all be friends on Monday. And Claire says she doesn't think they're going to be friends. And they think that she's being a bitch. And she just says, I'm not being a bitch. I'm the only one telling the truth. And she yep. gets scenarios to prove her point, right? Like Andy wouldn't act like he knew him in front of the jocks if he walked up. Bender wouldn't take Alice into a metal party, like right? Like shit like that. Exactly. And Bender starts to get extra harsh again, and Claire loses it on him. And Brian says that he and Allison are the only nice ones because they wouldn't do that to the rest of them. And the rest of them are just shitty people. And this is one of the real horrors of high school, right? Yep. But Claire says she really hates that it works this way and that clicks work this way, but there's nothing she can do about it because she has to be in a part of her groups and she can't be a part of that being friends with people like them, right? And then this is where it gets darker. We find out that Brian is in detention for bringing a gun to school to kill himself with over that F and getting a B average, right? Because he can't have a B average with his parents. And everybody's crying and they're all freaking out and it gets really dark until they break the tension by Brian saying that he brought a flare gun to school and it went off in his locker and burned the fucking elephant lamp to nothing. Right. And now we know why we saw a Scorch locker at the beginning of the movie. That was Brian's. And why I was laughing uncontrollably a couple of seconds ago. <laughs> yeah. It, it was really dark the way you're laughing there. Then uh, it comes full circle. It's his delivery, man. <laughs> because he's crying and shit. And he's there's a flare gun. <laughs> yeah. I can't help it. Well, Allison wants to know what kind of handgun it was. And he says it's a flare gun. And that's when Emilio Estevez just busts out laughing and they all fall asleep. <laughs> yep. Oh. But they all get a good laugh out of it, including Brian. And they convince him that suicide's never the answer. Yep. But then we finally get to find out why Allison is there. She did absolutely nothing and didn't get in trouble. She just showed up for detention that day because she had nothing better to do. That is the darkest one out of all of them, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but Brian goes into like the media room in the library and turns some tunes on and we cue the 80s dance montage because we all knew it was coming at some point. Yep. A crazy thing about this scene is like right when it gets to the part where it shows Allison dancing and spinning in front of that statue thing that the lunch meat got thrown yeah. on. That was the end of the movie for me for the longest time as a kid because it really, yep. It went to snow into Jimmy Swagger. <laughs> oh, it was the Jesus tapes again. <laughs> it really was, man. I did not see past this part of the movie until I was in my mid twenties. Jeez. And at this point, I'm going to call this the quick third act of the film. But somewhere in here, they're all sitting on the rail together, which I think's the scene I have on the green screen behind me for Josh to enjoy. Yeah, yeah. That's and <laughs> they convince Brian that they would all say the same thing on the essay, and he's the best student out of all of them. So why doesn't he just write one really good essay for all of them, speaking as a group, right? And he agrees to do it. 
Didn't take much convincing for some reason. Nope. But Claire takes Allison into the bathroom, loans her a dress, does her hair and makeup, and unleashes her on Andy, who she apparently has a crush on. And now Andy really likes her because, you know, she's not hideous looking now or anything. Now, see, I disagree. I think she looks way cuter in the raccoon makeup. Yep. I think she was a lot cuter as the punk chick. Then again, we were the weird outcast punk kids growing up. So that's probably why. True. I mean, it's Ali Sheedy. She was cute both ways, but I, I did like her better with the crazy dark hair and the black clothes. And, and like you said, the raccoon makeup. But I was more making a, um, is it not another teen movie? She's all that. Or she's all that. Joke, right. Yes. Yeah. She's all that. <laughs> now, Sporto wants her. <laughs> yeah. They called Sporto randomly throughout the movie. I don't know if that was an 80s thing because we were. Shit, three when this movie came out, right? Yeah, I want to say, because they say Sporto and the sports, I really think Sport was, the, and Sporto was the precursor to just saying jock. Because probably, I, I don't think anybody had come up with, hey, jock strap, we'll call them the jocks, jockey. Yeah. I don't think that had happened yet, which it sounds yeah. really weird to hear. <laughs> it's like, they called him what? <laughs> Ooh, that's so derogatory. <laughs> yeah. But uh, now that, Allison and Andy are probably hooking up. We see Claire sneak into the closet, which I forgot to say, but Bender has another like sweating bullets crawling back to the ceiling, back to the closet scene earlier. Yeah. But Claire sneaks in there with them and they admit that they like each other and they either make out or hate fuck. I'm not really sure what happens in that closet right there, <laughs> but one of the two definitely <laughs> takes place. Yeah. I think they just make out because Bender says the line to her. Well, she kisses him first on the neck. And right. He's like, Why'd you do that? And she's like, because I knew you wouldn't. And uh, he's like, you know how you said your parents are always trying to use you to get under each other's skin? Wouldn't I be great in that capacity or something along yeah, those lines? Yeah. <laughs> oh, every bit of this movie is manipulation, but I'll save it. Anyways. I know. <laughs> but they leave the essay that Brian wrote on the table. He kissed it because it was his masterpiece. They head down the hall. They say goodbye to Carl. Bender lets Carl know that he'll see him next weekend. And they go out to the parking lot where apparently their parents are all cool with them making out with each other on top of the cars. Yep. And Claire gives Bender one of her diamond earrings that he made fun of her for earlier. And he puts it in his ear and he starts to walk home after the other kids have all driven off with their parents. And he does the famous fist pump into a freeze frame with the credits rolling scene and the epic theme song is playing during all of this. And we get to hear the end of the essay that was not read at the beginning in Anthony Michael Hall's voice. We hear him say that they found out that each one of them is a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess and a criminal. And they want to know if that answers Mr. Vernon's question. Sincerely yours, the breakfast club. And when it says each one of the stereotypes, you get to hear that part in that kid's voice, right? Like yeah. you hear Sporto say the athlete, right? And I didn't write it down, but John Hughes was Brian's dad that picked him up in the car. It was a nice little cameo there. He's got cameos in most of his movies, but that's it, man. That's the, that's the breakfast club in a nutshell. Yeah. It, it's crazy, man. And I'm going to do this more than once during this recording. And that's, I see this movie so much differently as an adult as I did when I was a kid. Cause when I was a kid, yep. I was like, this shit's funny and it's got a little bit of message in it and whatever. And then as an adult, it's like, Oh my God, people don't realize like w the point that's trying to be made here. It, it it's, it's friggin' sociology is exactly what it is and how, yep. how quickly a group of unrelated individuals when put in a box quickly find common ground it's the it's a survival yeah. technique 
and that's what you see play out in 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 the whole group when they branch off it's but the thing is is like claire's the conceited prom queen and when it comes down to it she's the one that actually says hey brian we all think that you should just write blah blah, blah. like at the end of the day they've all <laughs> got to know each other but at the end of the day they're still them and and that's what that's what growing up is is you're you're always going to be different and you're if you were put in a box you would get along with a lot more people but everybody's so concerned about what other people think that they're too fucking scared to just be themselves and it also shows like the hordes of peer pressure in high school and cliques and everybody is in their groups. I mean, even when we were like the outcast skater punk kids and hanging out with the goth kids, we made fun of everybody else like they were making fun of us. Exactly. Right. But you end up actually hanging out with some of the jocks at some point down the road, you know, doing something. Right. Exactly. That's the, you know, what happened to me was like, you know, I, I, I played basketball for a little bit and then ended up being with, you know, the, the, the rocker guys. And then it ended up being where our common denominator was that most of us were all smoking weed. I mean, that's just, it's what it was. (laughs) I always ended up being a floater. If you think about like some of my groups of friends that I introduced everybody with, like I had like the group of preppy kids I hung out with, uh, you know, and stuff like that. Like I hung out with all of the groups somehow. And I think it's just because I was always a smart ass. (laughs) I thought it was funny. But like, if you can find that one thread, like you said, to get along with everybody, it works out, but it's very rare that you get to be in that scenario where you can hang out with each of the groups and them not act like they're not your friend in front of their friends. Right. Yep. Well, the coolest thing to me in the movie is you even watch it happen with Carl and Vernon as they sit back and, and drink some beers and the home life being the problem for everybody from different angles, but home life being the problem for everybody. The point that's made is, is the, the, the perfect upbringing. Those kids are miserable too. Like everybody's miserable when they're trying to find themselves and, and trying to put on a front for someone else, be it the other kids, their parents. And that's why I said earlier, like you, to be more realistic in this movie, if people are upset about some of the things that were said in this movie, it could be way worse to be more honest. And, uh, I'm the guy that I don't like a lot of message in my shit and I'm pissed off with what recent conversation I had about people that don't understand what the message is in this movie. Like, like, Oh, this is just a boring movie with people talking. Like that's what a lot of people say about early Kevin Smith movies too. Like, are you not fucking paying attention to the characters and what they're dealing with and, and, and the problems of the world that are trying to be brought up and at least get somebody to converse about it. It also makes you really think about you don't know how somebody's home life is. Exactly. You're just fucking judging. Like, I try to think about that. People that work for me, like when they come in and they're being an ass or or something's going on, you know, I start to think like, I don't know what's going on at home, right? Like, you shouldn't bring home to work or vice versa, but it happens sometimes. And I feel like a lot of the, the movies and books that I read growing up and stuff made me think that way like this film because you naturally don't think like that no and everybody's protective and it's easier to it's easier to judge or go for the throat and and know that it's going to be over than to try to stop and think and deal with it and that's that's the difference between getting older and getting mature yeah it it's just so weird for me to just see in this movie two different ways in my life yeah because they all really think the other one has a perfect life yeah like even bender like they think he has a good life and he's just faking like a tough kid and he has a, a shitty life. But like even the rich kids have 
bad lives and the, you know, Brian, it shows like a perfectly nurtured child by caring parents. And he still has a rough time at home because he has to make straight A's, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, and they set it up great when he's getting dropped off because his mom goes, is this the first time or the last time we do this? And he's like, last time. Right. And that's that's the pressure that gets put on people. And uh, I think the movie did a great job of packaging it in with enough comedy and enough to pay attention to for it to still be fun. Yeah. Don't fucking remake this one. Oh, God, no, no, not not another teen movie is as close as you can get to <laughs> a parody. A parody is fine. Do parody not is fine. This fucking movie. It was a masterpiece and a cult classic and uh, made fist pumps. And, and that song really cool. I was like, they made everybody know that fucking song. <laughs> yeah, we could probably talk about that movie all day long. But we have to talk about another movie today that has another catchy theme song they get stuck in everybody's head and that's 1986's ferris bueller's day off so yeah then one year later presumably in february we got (laughs) ferris bueller's day off which was written and directed by john hughes of course we've got matthew broderick as ferris bueller who once again war games but uh (laughs) is also in things that stick out to me the cable guy the really bad godzilla movie and then Inspector Gadget, which... Yeah, the really bad Inspector Gadget movie. Yeah, well, when he's dressed up as Mr. Peterson, it's like foreshadowing of what was going to happen. Oh, yeah, you're right. Um, we've got Alan Ruck as Cameron Fry. He was in Twister. He was recently in Freaky. He was in Bad Boys, the 83 movie. Did you ever watch Bad Boys and Tough Turf? For some reason, those movies are always uh-uh. together in my mind. Bad Boys was the one with Sean Penn and... Um, he ends up going to jail and his girlfriend gets raped. It's like, it's a fucked up gritty. Jeez. Like you want, you want to talk about dark shit. Watch uh, bad boys and tough turf. So we're not talking about uh Martin Lawrence. No, no, Will Smith here. definitely okay. not. And then he was on spin city for like, yeah, every episode. Mia Sarah, Sloan Peterson, which mm-hmm. I'm only going to mention legend and time cop, even though she's been <laughs> in a bunch of other shit. What's fucked up, man, is this was coming right off of legend. I'll go ahead and say this now. Cause I don't have it in my notes. She almost didn't get the part because uh, John Hughes wanted someone probably about 10 years older to really be able to express the depth that this character needed to express. And it wasn't until after she got the part that she told him that she was 18. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she was the only one that was actually a teenager because Broderick was 23 and um, Alan Ruck was 29. Yep. I was going to say he was he was the old guy out of them. We've got Jennifer Grey as Jeannie Bueller. This is right before Dirty Dancing, which there's a connection okay. to that movie of even more than her that we'll get into later. There's more people I'll mention when we get into the movie, but we've also got Jeffrey Jones as Ed Rooney, Howard the Duck, and Beetlejuice. Yes. And what I didn't know until researching this movie, a registered fucking sex offender. What? Yeah, 2002, proposition to minor, got busted with child porn. Jesus. Pled no contest to the propositioning, and then they dumped the other charge. But he's a fucking registered sex offender to this day because of that shit. Fuck. I like them in Howard the Duck and Beetlejuice. I did too, man. And now it's like, (laughs) Jesus, come on, What's wrong with people? I know, right? So some interesting behind the scenes before we jump into this. Motherfucker wrote this movie in six or seven days, depending on who you ask, <laughs> to beat a writer's strike. That's fascinating. He wrote Breakfast Club in a weekend, supposedly. Yeah, this that that's the thing. This man could just churn shit out. Now, the whole dynamic between Ferris and Cameron, the reason it works so well is because these two dudes had already done Biloxi Blues 
on stage together. So okay. they already knew each other. They were already friends. And Broderick was already used to having a bright character and talk to the audience because yeah. he did all that in Biloxi Blues. I mean, he's arguably more famous as a stage actor than a film actor anyways. Yeah. So that's why all that works so good. So well, Josh, it worked so well, Josh. Oh, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> so legend has it that there was a guy named Edward McNally that lived down the street from John Hughes. And he, he supposedly had a best friend named Bueller, but it was spelt differently okay. and no one's confirmed or denied this. So that's why I'm saying it as I read it, that rumored let's see Anthony Michael Hall was supposedly originally given an opportunity to play Ferris Bueller and turned it down. Oh no. Oh, I know, no. right? That wouldn't have worked at all. I like Anthony Michael Hall, but that wouldn't have worked at all. Check this out. So the rest of the short list goes Jim Carrey, John Cusack, Tom Cruise, and Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox is probably the only other one that could come close, and it still wouldn't work the way it works with Broderick. No, dude. Cusack could have done it. Better off dead. I don't know, man. Just think of better off dead. Yes, but I don't. There's a certain amount and of Tom charisma. Tom Cruise is a crazy Scientologist, but I'm pretty convinced he can play anything at this point. <laughs> I've seen him be less fucking Grossman. Okay. <laughs> um, Molly Ringwald wanted to play Sloan, but uh, John Hughes is like, this is beneath you. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. When she'd already been in so many of his other films, right? Exactly. Supposedly, Emilio Estevez turned down an offer for the role of Cameron. Oh, he couldn't have done it either. Alan Ruck was fucking perfect for that role. Yes. That role could have been Jim Carrey. I could have seen Jim Carrey that, be Alan Ruck's that, character. That, that, yep. That would have been okay. I'm with. just thinking of the catatonic scene and the falling into the swimming pool. Like, <laughs> that could have been Jim Carrey. <laughs> as I've already fucking mentioned, seeing both of these movies and a lot of movies differently as I grow up. As a kid, I looked up to Ferris. I thought he was so cool. Yeah. I thought he had such a fun day. But on recent rewatch, I realized that he's a dick. <laughs> I don't think he's a dick. Maybe, maybe you'll convince me, but I don't think he's a dick right now. Well, he goes he goes through the change in the movie. He does get to become the reformed cool guy, but uh, he really does start off as as a manipulative dick. But at its heart, it's just the story of an extrovert helping an introvert come out of his shell. Yeah. That's what we get into in this particular study in teen sociology. <laughs> <laughs> Every time. I was homesick from school, whether it be for real or to play a Sega game. This fucking movie was on TV. <laughs> Guilt in your ass. <laughs> and I watched it every fucking time. He was having a way better day than I was. So we open up hearing a radio announcer telling us that it's a beautiful day in Chicago, but we see poor Ferris way too sick for school. Yep. His cold and clammy hands are really selling it to his mom and dad, but not his sister, Jeannie, who's looking at him like, this is bullshit again. Yeah. And he kind of winks at her like, you know, what's up, sis? And she's like, fuck this. <laughs> she already wants out of the family. <laughs> of course, Jeannie's told to go to school and the rest of the fam takes off. But dad does say that he's going to be home at six sharp. And as soon as they're out of the room, fair springs up. They bought it. So, uh, Ferris then continues on with his first of many fourth wall breaking monologues. And he goes on about the clammy hands being the key to faking his ninth sick day. And yeah. uh, this is all while he's dicking around with his five grand stereo. And he starts to, he's tying a string around a, a trophy and there's like the shit coming up on the screen. He's like, don't do this. That's, uh, uh you're going to end up at, at, at the doctor. <laughs> what you do is you fake a stomach cramp. 
And then when you're hunched over in pain, you lick your palms. <laughs> that gives you the clammy hands. So he's well versed in this with this being his ninth sick day. This is a movie where I saw part of the commentary and quickly stopped myself, but it was just this opening scene right here, right? Like up to this point, but it was just chop full of little pointers. If I could throw them in real quick, I thought they were all interesting. Okay. For one, the mom and dad were dating in real life and got married right after the movie. Him and Jennifer Gray were dating and they ended up getting engaged after this, but I guess the engagement got broken off. Yep. And there was originally supposed to be three Bueller siblings and they shrunk it down to two. And on my third watch last night, watching it with my wife and kids, we started looking at each other and I'm like, wait a minute, they're both seniors. And I said, are they twins? I'm not sure. So my wife looked it up and it's assumed that they're twins because of the same age. And she's the older sister by a few minutes, like John had said before. Yep. I don't know. It's just really weird. Like apparently that was a big question. A lot of people ask, it's like, wait a minute, how are they both seniors? And she's the older sister and she's, she's just the older twin, right? Yeah, what's interesting, I'm bringing that up, and it there was four, well, three siblings, but four kids total, because there was supposed to be a younger brother and sister that were totally edited out of the movie. Yeah. The first cut of this movie was two hours and 45 minutes long. Jesus. <laughs> Couldn't have done it. Nope. Now, I'm covering the Bueller, Bueller, Bueller edition, which doesn't even have a fucking commentary. <laughs> <laughs> This one clocks in at like an hour and 45 minutes, so I don't know how far off this is from the theatrical. I just want to throw that out there. Mine was a, was an hour 47, and I, I don't recall it being a special edition, but maybe okay. it is. Oh, the last thing. I'm sorry. There was one more thing. It was part of all that. The uh, text overlay about the steps for being sick wasn't actually written to be in there, and John Hughes thought it was like a really dull scene listening to Ferris explain all of this, and there's just like a lot of blank space, and he's like, fuck it, throw this up there. That's fucking genius. Anyway, sorry. So we then follow Ferris into the shower. <laughs> he tells us that he really does have a, a test that day because he had said that to his parents. He was like, oh, but I got to go. And uh, he delivers my favorite line in the film. It's on European socialism. I mean, really, what's the point? I'm not European. I don't plan on being European. So who gives a crap if they're socialists? They can be fascist anarchists. It still wouldn't change the fact that I don't own a car. He bitches about that car so many times in the first like five, six minutes of this movie. He just keeps getting thrown in about how he how he doesn't have a car. It's so funny. Yeah. This was one of the scenes where my seven year old said, This is just like home alone because he's got the mohawk in the shower with the shampoo and he's singing into the shower sprayer and stuff. Yep. <laughs> Dead nuts on, man. Covering uh, the camera's eyes when he was <laughs> private junk. <laughs> yeah, John Hughes wanted him to really look like a kid in this opening scene, but. Which is weird. He's acting like a kid, but he's supposed to be a senior. Yeah. A kid kid. I don't know. That part's kind of off-putting to me, but. Well, that's why I'm bringing up his expensive toys, because it, it kind of. Yeah. I think it ties into it. But we then cut to Ben Stein's economics class. <laughs> and uh, he's calling roll, and he makes it to the infamous Bueller. Bueller. <laughs> Bueller. <laughs> and Christy Swanson fills the class in on why Ferris is out. He's sick. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious. Thank you, Simone. No problem whatsoever. I love that part, but just because the way she spits that line out, and I'm like, okay, we're prepping for Buffy here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Done perfectly. Now, uh, the original plan for Ben Stein was that all he was going to do was the roll call. And when they were rehearsing it, everybody started cracking up so much that 
they decided to add in the later scene that we're going to see with all the kids like fall asleep and drooling and shit and just let Ben Stein go. <laughs> and that's what he did. He's like, is there something you can talk about that you know well enough that you can just go like you're a teacher? And of course it's Ben Stein. He's like, yeah, we're, I'm going to talk about the depression and economics. <laughs> and that's all him all straight off the cuff. And even my seven and six year old were just like laughing their ass off. <laughs> The kids like drooling and fall asleep in class, getting bored because they could even relate in <laughs> kindergarten. So Ferris then calls Cameron to get a ride because he doesn't have a car. And Cameron <laughs> is really sick, like actually sick and apparently stuck in Egypt because he first he doesn't answer the phone. And he goes to the machine. He's like surrounded by like medicine and chicken noodle soup bowls and shit. And he's like, when Cameron was in Egypt's land, <laughs> let my Cameron go. He's really tripping balls on some NyQuil at this point, right? Yeah. And he's a character. Meanwhile, <laughs> Ed Rooney, who's the principal at the school calls mom at work to let her know, hey, Ferris has been out nine times and he has no problem holding his ass back a year. Nine times? Nine. And uh, all while the record changes from nine to two on Rooney's PC monitor. <laughs> he's fucking looking at <laughs> while he's talking to them. Oh, I, you were doing the mom. I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> and then... And as this happens, we immediately cut back to Ferris getting his war games on on the fucking yep. computer he was given when he really wanted a car. <laughs> so at least he made it work. So this is going to happen off and on throughout the movie. I'll try to hit the major ones. Back at school, rumors of Ferris being deathly ill have already made it to Jeannie, who is already pissed. <laughs> and we see Ferris Bueller talking to some freshman kids via the school's payphone while he's playing sick guy sound clips on his $8,000 keyboard. And that's, I'm, I'm keep bringing this shit up. That's how much that fucker cost back then. Well, they're obviously supposed to be rich kids, right? Exactly. And uh, he ends up telling one kid he may need a kidney transplant. Yeah. Well, there's already like rumors about the kidney. Like, it's funny. I had to explain what a rumor was to my kids so they could understand what was going on. Oh, that's good. That's a double-edged sword right there, sir. <laughs> Well, so, Aiden also learned how to fake sick. I could see him taking notes back there. <laughs> Lick my hands. Okay, I got this. So back at Rudy's office, we learned that uh, Ferris is well-known and well-liked. Oh, well, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. What's funny about that is he's a real righteous dude was ad-libbed on the spot by Edie, whatever her last name is, that played Grace. <laughs> She's great in this movie. She makes me laugh so hard. Like that one point. She is so good, man. <laughs> like at one point in the movie, she put a pencil in her hair and then pulled it back out. And then she just starts reaching in there and pulling out pencils that she has forgotten. Okay. Hair. Now there's a story behind that. So. Okay. She had teased out her hair like that on her own, thinking like, this is what I should look like when I come on to set. And she gets on set. And John sees her and he looks at her hair and looks at her, looks at her hair, looks at her. And she's like, oh, God, he hates the hair. He hates the hair. He hates the hair. And she, he goes, how many pencils do you think you could fit in there? <laughs> and that's where the pencil gag came from. <laughs> okay. But uh, eventually, after trying a whole bunch, Ferris manages to get Cam on the phone. And he basically guilts him into coming and picking him up and playing along with his grand scheme. More on that in a minute. Because we then see Sloan get pulled out of class. Due to her grandmother's death. Hopefully they haven't used this nine times. 
<laughs> it's so funny too because when she sees the nurse come in she starts packing her shit because yeah. she knows what's going on and then when they call her name she goes uh, who me <laughs> exactly back in the office Rooney hears about this and he's not fucking buying it especially once Grace says that she thinks that Sloan is dating Ferris so he goes to call Sloan's dad but Sloan's dad Mr. Peterson calls Rooney first but Rooney mm-hmm. immediately thinks that it's Ferris dicking with him Eddie tells him to drag the grandmother's corpse to the school if he wants Sloan sent home. (laughs) Yeah, it's common protocol now, right? Or something like that, he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Then the other line rings, and it's Ferris asking to have his schoolwork sent home with his sister. And Rooney and Grace are both like, oh, shit, you're really on the phone with Mr. Peterson. (laughs) Yeah. And so they freak the fuck out, but we quickly see that it's Cameron on the other end. And the call kind of goes south and Ferris ends up slapping Cam. He's like, I want her out there alone. And, and Ferris is like, no. He's like, well, what do you yeah. want me to do? He's like, fix it. And he hands the phone back to him. He's like, I want you out there with her. And Ferris and is he like, slaps no. the shit out of him too. Like slaps him in the face and the phone goes flying. Yup. And fucking Cameron grabs his jersey and he's like, fuck this. I'm out. And not only does Ferris manage to keep him there. But he ends up saying since he blew the call, he's going to need another favor from him. And what he does is he uses the whole thing against Cam to borrow his dad's 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California Spider. Arguably one of the most famous red cars in film history. Exactly. And they weren't able to get a real one for the movie. The joke was made that they could not only could they not afford the car, they couldn't afford the insurance on a rental. (laughs) So (laughs) they had three kit cars made. More on that later. So they go to pick up Sloan in Ferris's Inspector Gadget disguise. Yeah. And uh, as soon as Sloan walks down to the car, they start making out. And uh, Rooney's all like, so that's how it is in that family. But if you'll notice behind <laughs> him inside the school, Jeannie's seeing all this. And when yeah. we're seeing Jeannie inside, what she's hearing in the background is Ben Stein still fucking droning on, which I think is <laughs> yeah. great. Even Aiden caught that. He said, is that still the boring teacher? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the trio then heads off into the city, much to Cam's dismay. Uh, meanwhile, Jeannie gets hella pissed as the Save Ferris Kidney Fun Collection guy <laughs> comes walking <laughs> down the hall and he's got the kid. He's like, Save Ferris, Save Ferris. And yes, that's where that band name came from. If anybody knows the yeah. ska band, Save Ferris. I love it when he's like, what if you need a favor from Ferris Bueller someday? <laughs> oh, she's so fucking had it, man. And uh, She's great in this movie. She is. And she doesn't even get to say much. Just her body language and her facial yeah. expressions fucking sell it. And her Kung Fu moves, which we'll get to later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, Rooney's telling Grace, he's like, this is all Ferris Bueller's doing. Everybody's in on it. He's gotten to Sloan. I'm going to figure this out. And uh, he calls the Petersons and he gets their, their voicemail. Nope. This was 86. He gets their answering machine <laughs> and it's Cameron faking Peterson. And then he calls the, the, no, no, no. He calls, he calls there and it's Sloan. Who's like, I'm sorry. We've had a death in the family. If you need to reach us, just call. <laughs> never makes it to the phone number and then he calls the funeral home but that's the number to cameron's phone line where he's got a recording so oh the mortuary is closed today (laughs) 
<laughs> it's, it's the Coffin Brothers Mortuary. <laughs> is that what it is? Oh, it's so good. Yeah. But uh, so they got the, they got the ever they got all their fucking bases covered. Is what I'm getting at here. So uh, they make it to the big city, and uh, the trio drops the car off at a parking garage. And uh, <laughs> Cameron's like, "No, no, no, Ferris, no! It could it could get a scratch, it could get stolen." And he's like, "It's okay, it's okay. I'm gonna slip the guy a fiver to take good care of it." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he gives the valet five bucks. And uh, him pulling off in the car, they had to shoot 12 times because the fucking car wouldn't crank. These kit oh, the cars, fake car wouldn't start. <laughs> yes, they barely had him kept together. I just love how Ferris like, do you speak English? And the guy's like, what country do you think this is? <laughs> I was watching a thing with that guy. And uh, he was reading that part. And he's like, the whole time he was thinking, I'm just a dude. I'm just the valet. And he read that part. And he's like, huh, I'm going to be Eastern European. <laughs> That's what he went with. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, as the trio is walking out of the garage, you can actually see the car pull out behind them and yes. dude's buddy hops in the car with them and they go tear it ass off. <laughs> so the trio now heads to their first of many stops as they gallivant around the city and they're at the Sears Tower. While we see mom concerned about her sick son, go home to check on him because you're, you're led to believe that Rooney got into her head a little bit, but I don't think so. I think she's just that concerned because she's been played like a fiddle. Well, you see her think about what Rooney says here yeah. in a minute. Like she ponders on it. Yeah. But she goes up the stairs and there's dramatic music playing and you know, he's <laughs> so fucking busted as she opens the door, but no, you see what he was tied together and he's got a rig on a string to the door with a fucking mannequin that rolls over while his stereo is playing fucking snoring sounds. Ah, that's why he was dicking with the stereo during his monologue. Shit starting to make yep. sense, but the blanket's starting to come off the mannequin, but it's cool. Cause mom's gone. But then mom turns around, opens the door second time. But she doesn't open it enough for the blanket to fall all the way off the mannequin. And she's like, my boy wouldn't do this. It's all fine. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she hears Rooney in her head as she does it. And, and, and you know he's caught this time. And now he's still skirted by somehow. Yep. Nine times. So uh, Nine times? Nine times. <laughs> <laughs> the trio then fake their way into a high-class restaurant for pancreas. And I'll explain pancreas later when it comes up again later okay. in the movie. It's another bit of just showing Ferris thinking on his feet because uh, he looks at the, the the registry or whatever. I've never been to a fancy restaurant where they're like the waiting list, whatever, and just picks a name. And the guy's like, you're that guy, the the sausage king of, of Chicago or whatever. Well, it was the only group of three, like party uh, of three on the waiting list. Yeah. So they use the phone in the restaurant to call in and have Sloan describe what he's wearing to the Mater D, but the Mater D's like, there's somebody on the other fucking line. And he clicks over to it thinking he's going to bust him. And it's, Ka is it Cameron that's acting like he's talking to the police? Yeah. <laughs> like just real quick shit. And, and cause at first Sloan doesn't want to go along with it. She's like, this is too far. You're going to get busted. And he, he breaks the fourth wall. And he's like, one, you can never take, you never go too far <laughs> Two, If I'm going to get busted, <laughs> it's not going to be by someone like this. And of course, once he sits him down, he's like, uh, it's like, I'm terribly sorry about the misunderstanding. And Ferris is all like, it's okay. Understanding is what, what makes it possible for people like us to tolerate people like you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but more importantly, Ferris goes into the bathroom and goes on this monologue about Cam's home life and, and really starts to lay it out that like Cam Cameron really only feels better when he's sick. Cause that's his only escape from his parents. He's got a dad yeah. who loves a car more than he loves him and his mom. Yeah. Uh, the, he's got uh, parents that hate each other and he lives in a museum and basically he's just like another one of their things. And that's, 
that that's the life yeah. this guy guy's been dealt. He would have been perfect in the Breakfast Club, right? Like he could have yes. been one of them. Ferris, on the other hand, does have the perfect life. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> but he's yeah. trying to help his buddy out. So they then leave the restaurant and go to catch a Cubs game. And when it's shown the outside of the the stadium, the marquee says, save Ferris. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't catch that one. Word is getting around. And uh, while they're there, Ferris ends up catching a foul ball. And while this is going on, Rooney's at a pizza parlor thinking that he's going to bust Ferris and almost sees this on the TV that's playing in there. But he misses it. Yeah. Meanwhile, Jeannie's had enough and she goes to the office to spill the beans to Rooney about Ferris. But she finds out Rooney has stepped out on personal business, according to Grace. Mm-hmm. So she skips out to head to the house where Rooney is now. And he rings the doorbell and we get a shot of a relay tripping that causes a pre-recorded greeting to play. And Rooney does a perfectly matched back and forth with it. Yeah, that's the fucking recording. It's like, oh, I'm afraid I can't come to the door in my current weakened physical condition. I may f- I may hurt myself and cause further absences. <laughs> yeah, I might fall down the stairs, right? <laughs> oh, it's so good. But uh, so Rooney goes through the whole thing with it. And when he when he hits the button a second time, he realizes he's been had because it plays the same recording again. You know, Rooney stalking these high school kids through Illinois is extra creepy when you find out he was a fucking pedo. I know, right? Fucked up. So Rooney starts peeping in on the house, creeping around the house. (laughs) Definitely creeping now that we know (laughs) what we know. (laughs) He ends up getting stuck in mud along the way and is now carrying around a shoe because of it. (laughs) But then he discovers a doggy door around the back of the house. He starts to crawl in and is immediately confronted by a big ass mean dog who chases him off <laughs> and steals his fucking shoe. This always bothers me in movies when people are like, I'm going to sneak in the doggy door and they don't think about why is there a doggy door? Yeah. Like, is it for the <laughs> right. fucking parakeet? <laughs> nope. Nope. For a Rottweiler. Right. <laughs> so back to the trio who has now made it to the, uh, the art Institute. That's the museum that they're mm-hmm. at. And, uh, after a mildly dramatic viewing, they catch a cab and they realize that they're, uh, they're, they're, the car they're in is right next to Ferris's dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, the boys drive in the floorboard while Sloane puts on her big ass shades and she flirtatiously mouths at Pops. What's he doing? He's licking the glass and making obscene gestures with his hands. What? <laughs> and we can also see on the newspaper that Ferris's dad is reading that there's a story on the other side entitled Community Rallies Around Sick Youth. <laughs> Yes. And I do want to say when they left the restaurant earlier, they walk out the front door and his dad's having a business meeting because he was eating at the same restaurant and he was actually in the stall in the bathroom when Ferris was monologuing. He just came out after Ferris and they have to sneak behind his dad and steal his dad's cab while he's not looking and another cab pulls up in his place because that's a running gag about how many times his dad almost catches him in this movie. Yep. So right after this, Cam and Sloan get separated from Ferris near a parade. And if this sudden jump feels a bit odd, it's because this was supposed to be before the museum, but test audiences didn't like the museum scene in that cut and said that it messed with the pacing. So they decided to flip it and change the music. And that's how we ended up getting here. It still bothers me that just like all of a sudden they're like outside walking. Where's Ferris? Like, is there a missing reel? (laughs) Yeah. But then they hear a familiar voice come over the PA of the parade float. And it's fucking Ferris Bueller. And he lip syncs Dunkashane on a fucking float. <laughs> and then he breaks into Twist and Shout. Now, there's two things I want to bring up here. So, one, there originally was a big dance scene for Ferris Bueller to do. 
in the scene. And it was choreographed by Kenny Ortega, who later choreographed Dirty Dancing. So that's an interesting connection. And Broderick couldn't do it because he actually hurt his knee filming the ending chase scene before this. And that's why he doesn't really dance or that much or do a bunch of knee slides like it was intended. (laughs) The parade was real. I forgot the name of it. Um, It's German. Uh, That much I do remember. But some of the shots were actually pickups on a second shoot where they had literally had thousands of extras show up and they're like, the people showed up, let's go ahead and shoot it. So that was pretty neat. Did you know they paid a hundred thousand dollars to use twist and shout? That doesn't surprise me because it is the, the Beatles. Yep. Yeah. And EMI records and Paul McCartney were pissed because they added brass. Hell yeah. Editing to the song <laughs> because there's a band there playing it. And Paul McCartney's like, if the song would have needed brass, we would have put brass into it, which is really <laughs> fucking it's kind of cocky ass, all of them to say. But hey, man, different strokes for different folks, I guess. So back at the house, Louis Anderson drops off some flowers. I saw his name in the credits and I'm like, what? <laughs> I had to go yeah. back and double check. It really is Louis He's Anderson. In there twice. Yeah. yeah. I was like, say, you could definitely tell it's him when he shows up again. And, uh, he hands these flowers to Rooney and this doesn't get shown, but the aftermath gets shown. Hmm. Rooney then smashes the dog's head with the fucking flower pot to knock it out yeah. and get his shoe back. So while this is going on, Jeannie sees that the local water tower is now adorned with save Ferris <laughs> <laughs> and then finally makes it home. So she is fuming at this point. So she goes in the front door. Rooney sees that someone just went in the front door and follows her in, but she's already made it upstairs. They end up (laughs) confronting each other in the kitchen and, you know, she thinks it's Ferris and he thinks it's Ferris. So one of them's like Ferris and the other one's like Bueller. And then they come around the corner. She screams bloody murder and kicks him in the face three times and goes (laughs) running upstairs. Knocks him right the fuck out. So she then calls the cops who care way more about how her brother is doing than finding out that there's a man in her house assaulting her. Her dialogue right there. I'm a girl that's very cute and alone in the house right now. I'm very protective <laughs> and I don't of my, want body. my body assaulted. Yeah. And, and then she's like, yes, my brother's fine. So after the phone call goes south, she hops on the house intercom. Excuse me. Whoever's in the house is still in the house. I'd like you to know that I've just called the police. So if you have any brains whatsoever, you'll get your ass out of my house real quick. I'd also like to add that I have my father's gun and a scorching case of herpes. So upon hearing this, (laughs) Rooney takes off, dropping his wallet in the kitchen in the process. And he gets outside just in time to see his car getting towed. Now, what I want to bring up is the whole time he's been there, it's intercut going back to his car that's parked next to a fire hydrant, and it's just getting piled up with fucking tickets on the windshield of the car. And he tries to put his key in the door to unlock the car while the tow truck's driving off, and it takes off. He's like, my keys! Yeah, he's super fucked. That's what you get for being a stalker. Yeah, and a dickhead. So after all this happens, Jeannie hears the doorbell ring. She's like, great. It's the cops. She goes downstairs and opens the door, but is instead greeted by Louis Anderson and the nurse who likes to fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the trio has picked up the car and as they're driving home and as they're driving, they start to realize that the car somehow has over 300 miles on it because Cameron's like, my dad counts the miles on it. There's a, what does he say? 126 and, and three quarters of a way in, into yeah. an eighth or something. And now it's got over 300 on it. And it's like, oh shit. And this causes Cam to literally lose his shit and then go catatonic. So first they try talking to Cam and uh, Sloan's like rubbing his head and like 
blink if you can hear me, <laughs> while mm-hmm. Ferris is giving a monologue about how, you know, this really was for Cameron. What's fixing to happen is high school is going to be over and we're going to hang out this summer and then I'm going to go to college and then he's going to go his way. And I really want this guy to have fun because he's the guy out of everybody I know that really needs to have fun and sort out his shit. And he goes into a thing about how Sloan's another issue altogether, because earlier in the movie, he's like, you want to get married? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, let's get married today. And she thinks it's a joke. During the monologue, he's like, I really do want to marry her, but we got to wait another year because she's got another year in high school. But it's just more of his, his, all his monologues is one, it's narration, but two, I think it's trying to get you to understand the, the hows and the whys of his character. Yeah. That he's not just full on narcissistic and manipulative, that he really is trying to do something for his buddy one last hurrah before they got an adult. But at any rate, once sitting there talking to Cam doesn't work, they take him to hang out in a pool and they've got his chair sitting there. Isn't it like actually on the diving board? Not on the edge of the pool, but on the diving board. And uh, Sloan and Ferris are in the hot tub and Cam finally moves and he just kind of looks down. And just kind of slouches his body into the pool and fucking floats to the bottom or sinks to the bottom. And he's sitting there for a minute and then he kind of looks up like, anybody? And then, of course, Ferris finally jumps in and pulls him out and then they freak the fuck out because he's not waking up. He's not fucking breathing. And then Cam snaps out of it and smiles. He's like, Ferris Bueller, you're my hero. And Cam's so happy for himself that he actually played a trick on Ferris. Like, it really feels like since fifth grade, this has never happened. And Cam finally got one. I don't know if that's true or not, but. So after this, we see Jeannie at the police station, and we're going to find out why she's there in a little bit. But she's talking to Charlie Sheen, who in the credits is just boy at police station. So I'm going to call him Charlie Sheen. (laughs) Somehow, Charlie Sheen looked like 30 years into the future (laughs) and embodied that that character. I hate to say that, Supposedly, he wasn't on drugs for that scene, and they had him not sleep for a day before he shot it. Yes. So he'd look that strung out, supposedly. I'm thinking he was just on fucking tiger's blood and cocaine. Could have been. It could go either way with that, man. So uh, she says that uh, she had been picked up by the cops for making a phony phone call to the police. While meanwhile, her brother gets to do whatever the fuck he wants and gets away with it. (laughs) And uh, Charlie Sheen proceeds to quickly be the voice of reason and tells her that she should worry about herself, not her brother. And Mm -hmm. she she takes this advice and they start making out as we see mom leaving her meeting with one of the cops in the the room. Of course, it's a glass office. So you can see all this happen at the same time. And uh, it's like, okay, mom's there to pick her up. (laughs) And as she's walking out, it's like, hey, all us guys at the station are really pulling for Ferris. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, wait, what? (laughs) Exactly. So, of course, mom and uh, mom and Jeannie leave. Mom's pissed at Jeannie. Now we get one more visit to the trio. With the car home and on a bumper jack, humming away in reverse, Cameron sees that the miles aren't coming off. Who the fuck would have thought that would have worked? I know, right? Because when when they're first taking the car and he's like, what are we going to do about the mileage? And he's like, we'll just drive home in reverse. And you think it's just a joke, but here they are actually fucking trying it. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, this sends Cam into a full-blown breakdown where he finds his balls and says that he's going to confront his father. And uh, as he talks it through, he goes into a rage and starts kicking the shit out of the front of the car. And we keep seeing the bumper jack just tilt more and more and more (laughs) till it's nearly given out. 
Cameron stops and he sees the damage that he's done to the car. He's like, oh, I kicked the shit out of it. <laughs> it's like, you know what? I'm tired of being scared. I can't wait to see the look on the bastard's face. And as he's saying it, he's like propping his foot up on the car like, I, I, I got this. And as soon as he puts his foot on the car, the fucking jack falls. That shit burns out and flies <laughs> right out the glass window and into the fucking ravine below. <laughs> and Cameron's response is fucking priceless. What did I do? You killed the car. That garage, okay, so it's a legit garage at a legit house, and the whole thing's glass, and those glass panes were so old that they couldn't just bust out one and replace it. They had to replace every pane of glass just to do this one shot, and then then put all the original glass back in, but they really did that. They pulled that fucking kit car with a cable and sent that motherfucker right out the window. It worked out. Yeah, yeah. So, uh. In this moment, Ferris finally comes to terms with this all being his fault, in my opinion. And he honestly mm-hmm. offers to take the heat. And Cameron's like, no, I'll take the heat. And, and, and Ferris is like, you don't want this much heat. <laughs> yeah, this is too much heat, man. Let me do it. Your dad already hates me. Let me do it. <laughs> yes. Which would bust him out for the whole thing. The nine days, the trick his parents. Like, he'd be uppercase fucked. And he was willing to take it just to protect his buddy. Because yep. he knows it's his fault. But they do spin it into a joke because he's like, you know, it's my fault. I came over here and talked to you into getting into let me take the car. And uh, he's like, I could have stopped you. You know, you're not. No, it's not that no one can stop Ferris Bueller. And Ferris is like, right. well, well, come on, man. <laughs> and uh, it's a fun little back and forth where at least you see that they're they're cool with each other. And then we even get this uplifting music as it zooms in on Cameron. So we know Cameron really means it. Like, I'm finally going to fucking be free. I'm going to take whatever this is, but I'm going to grow a spine. The whole plan worked at this point is what, what I believe we're supposed to understand. He got the motherfucker out of a shell. He's doing it in the most painful way possible, but at least he's going to fucking be a man. And that's why I disagreed with you at the beginning on Ferris just being like a bratty asshole because he was really doing this for Cameron. Yeah, but he would have to be psychic to know that things were going to go this far. Stealing stealing a car that they only made less than 100 of is a bit much. <laughs> well, I don't think his plan was to take the Ferrari originally because he had no clue. Oh, no, I agree. Because the whole phone call. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. He was doing yeah, what he had to do to make it work. Slowed up in Cameron's car. Yeah, he just like figured out an extra way that he could have fun for the day that's still no if i had a friend try, i don't know at that age <laughs> i want to say you would have fucking taken the ferrari <laughs> you would have taken the ferrari i know you i've known you your whole life you would have taken the fucking ferrari no if it was an automatic yes it was a five speed i'd be fucked you would have learned real fast to drive that <laughs> so we see ferris walk sloan home And they make out a little bit. And as they're making out, he looks at her watch and it's five minutes to six. Holy shit. He's got to get home. And I guess this is the very short third act because the movie, the movie gets to the middle and then it like hangs and then the movie's over. It's really weird. The Breakfast Club did the same thing. That might be part of his auteur style. We'll get into that in a little bit. So we cut back to Jeannie in the car with mom, but Jeannie's driving and mom's going through all this paperwork because she's a realtor. And she was talking about in the beginning of the movie, how she was going to close the deal with the couple from Vermont. And she's going on about how she didn't close the deal with the couple from Vermont because of Jeannie's antics. And as this is going on, Ferris Bueller runs right out in front of him. Jeannie slams on the brakes and gives Ferris the, I'm going to kill you from the testicles. First look Mm -hmm. while mom's just, Oh my God, would you look at this? Like she doesn't see Ferris at all. And I buy it because they're arguing. It would make sense if she was being a bratty kid and just slammed on the brakes. So that's fine. I could buy her not seeing, seeing her son. 
I'll give them this one. We won't give them the next one. But anyways. <laughs> yeah, but the dads had those the whole movie, though. So you he have has. to give it to them. I think it just shows like how unaware the dad is the whole time. Yeah. Like, well, even when uh, to stay on that for a minute, when the parade's going on, it even shows him in his office looking out his window down at the parade and dancing. <laughs> yeah, he starts where to the twist and shout dance there. with the parade and it's his son down there. But uh, Ferris takes off and Jeannie gives chase until she gets pulled over. And Ferris darts through some yards, and he stops once only to introduce himself to two terrible sunbathers. And I only bring that up <laughs> because they're both facing us, and the sun setting behind them, they're, they're, they're the worst sunbathers ever. And they're in shade under trees. <laughs> exactly. This scene has been redone so many times for commercials and stuff because it's just iconic. Yep. And the most recent one I can think of is the one that sticks out the most to me, and that's Stewie Griffin doing it on Family Guy. <laughs> oh, shit. But uh, he goes back to running and uh, runs out into the street and he's jogging right next to Oblivious Dad. And Dad looks, goes back to what he's doing, and he does the little nod like, I didn't just see that. By the time he looks back again, Ferris is darting around the back of the car. And uh, (laughs) he goes through a house, out their backyard, (laughs) up this playground slide, bounces off the trampoline this little kid's on. And has this nice slow-mo million dollar man fucking <laughs> dramatic landing into his own backyard. Presumably where he hurt his knee. Yeah. And at the same time, the family's pulling up. Both dad, mom, everybody's pulling up out front. So Ferris makes it to the back door, but it's locked. So he goes for the hide key, but it's missing. And then he sees someone holding the hide key. And it's fucking Rooney. Mm-hmm. And Rooney's like, I finally fucking got you. And I'm going to go with my assumption of what happens here. Jeannie sees them talking or can hear them talking from inside the house. And I think she hearkens back to Charlie Sheen on yep. one hand and is like, you know what? I'm going to be a fucking sister. I'm not going to be mad. I'm just going to be a sister. And that guy's a fucking piece of shit. So I don't want him to have the satisfaction. And so we have the perfect storm. She opens the door and she's like, oh, my God, Mr. Rooney, thank you so much for driving Ferris home. Would you believe he would try to walk home from the hospital? Go get in bed. (laughs) (laughs) And she looks at Rooney and she's like, you forgot your wallet. And she throws it out of frame and we hear it go into water. But I didn't see any water in the backyard, but whatever. (laughs) It's always bothered me. It could have been the odd mud pit next to the house where they obviously have a pipe leak underground that needs to be addressed at. Oh, yeah. They have foundation damage. There's no way around that. (laughs) (laughs) So Rooney goes to walk away in defeat. And then the dog wakes up <laughs> fucking starts attacking his ass. And we just hear him screaming outside. Good for the dog, man. You don't fuck with doggos. I know, right? He got to fucking get him back. So Ferris rushes up the stairs and into bed. And mom and dad are right behind him. Now, I'm going to point out one thing I do have a problem with. Mom and dad come in and there's like 8 million get well fucking flowers and plants and shit. <laughs> Who was there to let all those in? Anyways, just saying. But they're coming up the stairs and they're talking and uh, Ferris, you know, gets his his going out clothes off and he gets into bed and he's gotten the position. Everything's fine. And then the doorknob starts to turn and Ferris goes, oh, holy shit. The stereo is still playing the snoring shit. And he reaches in his pocket and he's got the fucking foul ball that he caught at the Cubs game. He throws it at the stereo, hits the power button just as mom and dad come in. There's their son who now feels 150 percent better. (laughs) Mom and dad are like, yo, yo, we love you. I'm going to go make you some soup, blah, 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 blah. And they walk away and Ferris reiterates what he had said during the opening. I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. 
you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. At any rate, the credits start, but we've still got shit going on in, in half the shot. And it's Rooney walking down the fucking sidewalk with his bleeding ass leg. And the school bus pulls up like, Mr. Rooney, do you need a ride? He's like, no, well, (laughs) (laughs) I got no keys. I got no wallet. No keys. And uh, he gets on and he has to sit next to the one nerdy kid that nobody wants to sit next to who immediately offers him a pocket gummy bear. (laughs) (laughs) It's nice and warm and chewy. And uh, the credits in and then Deadpool pops up to tell us the movie's over. You do know the Deadpool scene was a uh, homage to this, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and that's what I wanted to bring up in, in pop culture. I mean, you said that both these movies are, and that's it. That's the end of the movie. Both these movies are on the, what, the Smithsonian record of. It's not Smithsonian. What but the yeah. fuck is it? National Archive. What the fuck is it? <laughs> You done fucked me up, son. The National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Yeah, say that instead of the shit I said. Um, (laughs) But not just that. I mean, like I said, you know, Family Guy spoofed this. And like you said, that ending, that's been spoofed in so many things and commercials and shit. The theme songs used all over the place. Yep. A lot of fourth wall scenes you can tell are homages to this. And uh, Deadpool, the merc with the mouth that always broke the fourth wall in the comics, and he broke it in the movie had to pay back to the original breaking the fourth wall. Exactly. Culture, right now, correct me if I'm wrong in the Deadpool. Isn't he made up to wear how Matthew Broderick was when he came out of the shower? Doesn't Deadpool have the robe and the towel on his head? He has one or the other. He has at least the robe. I feel like he has the towel as well. And it looks like the same fucking hallway. Yeah. Like that set still existed somewhere or somebody still made that wallpaper. One of the two. Okay. And that movie came out how many years ago? Not that many years ago. Right. So for a movie to be so iconic that you get something like that and Deadpool, other than the fourth wall, there's no tie in <laughs> between Deadpool right. and fucking Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And that just shows how much reach this movie had. That that fist pump scene from Judd Nelson at the end gets reused and shit all the time, too, right? Yeah. Family Guy does an episode where Peter Griffin does is does it. <laughs> I mean, obviously. Seth MacFarlane's a huge John Hughes fan. (laughs) That's what that comes down to, right? Yes, totally. It has to be. But this movie, I want to say it was shot for like 5.8 and made over 70. That's that's fucking slasher record breaker. James Wan returns, right? Yeah. And uh, it's just really neat because there's... There's no story. It's the same way with the with the Breakfast Club. Other than the, you know, you're here, you got to write the essay. There's more story there. But this is just... Hey, we're just taking a day off. And that's, they tell yeah. you in the fucking title. That's what it is. I was going to say, like, yeah. <laughs> it's not a bait and switch. You're being told right there what's happening. And I think that just kind of goes into John Hughes being a bit of an auteur. And I honestly should have done this at the beginning. And I'm guilty for not even putting this in my notes. But his movies were primarily teen stories or child stories when you get into home alone he did have a point where he didn't want to get typecasted for that and that's why he made planes trains and automobiles so he wasn't just known as the teen guy yeah like look i can do more stuff but he did stick a lot in that wheelhouse other than writing fucking all the you know lampoons vacation movies with chevy chase but he has lots of things that you have messages you have very character driven plots with an ensemble cast you can tell the scenes were written around songs Right, oh, yeah. Like a very iconic music. Almost every movie has Beatle references. Yep. 
or somebody singing a Beatles song. And a really common John Hughes thing that not everybody catches is he always has somebody mouthing something that an authority figure is saying as they say it behind their back. Like they've heard it a thousand (laughs) times. Like Bender does it with Vernon. Um, Somebody did it in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like, but it it happens a lot. I think even Macaulay Culkin did it in Home Alone, right? Like that's always written in there. Like they mouth something behind a grown up saying it. It wasn't Macaulay Culkin. It might have been the brother. Somebody said it right, but that's that's the thing that pops up in this movie. And you can see a John Hughes stamp on on both of these films and every movie. Not only that he directed, right, but he's one of the few screenplay writers that I feel like you can say that's a John Hughes movie. Yeah. Right. Like when you say it, like he might as well have directed it and you know, they say a piece of his soul died every time a director fucked one of his movies, but granted I haven't seen every John Hughes movie that he ever wrote, but I've probably seen 90% of them to be honest, at least. And they yeah. all feel like John Hughes movies. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, a John Hughes movie when you see it, it might as well just be its own subgenre. Yeah, no, totally. And that's what it's turned into. It's, I mean, it's legendary at this point. And there was, there was an interview I was listening to with him. Actually, I've heard him say it a couple of different interviews without going into detail. He would say like, you know, I, I wasn't really popular in school and that's mm-hmm. as much as he'll go into. And it's almost like, like he was such an outcast that he just sat in the corner and was a, a very avid observer. Like in breakfast yeah. club, he would be Allison. The, the one that no, who are you? Nobody. You're like, you're a fly on the fucking wall mm-hmm. type thing. And I think that's why the teen movies, at least how he could nail all that shit, because he, he really, really saw it. And he really wanted people to understand the depth of people having issues or having a shitty home life because yeah. he, he obviously wasn't. I, I didn't even get to be in any of the clicks type of guys. What it seems right, like. Right. And I would assume he was, you know, reliving part of his life in some of these characters, and he, he might not have had a good home life. You can even go to Home Alone, though, that's several years, maybe even a decade after these films, right? And he yep. didn't even direct that one. And Kevin's character is a character that isn't even noticed by his parents or siblings, right? Just because of where he falls in the line as a middle child. Yep. Right? And and that was kind of what he's wanting to do with Jeannie's character, right? She was supposed to be the middle child originally when there was more kids. And that makes you wonder if he was a middle child, to be honest. But like, even in a movie 10 years later that he wrote and didn't even direct and Chris Columbus directed, you still get that vibe with Kevin McAllister, right? You also still see a giant fucking house in Chicago. And you also still want to know what the parents do because they make too much money. (laughs) Cause that's also an ongoing thing in here. But I mean, the fact stands, you can tell a John Hughes movie more than you can tell a Flanagan or Juan movie sometimes as much as we talk about those guys, right? Yep. The man definitely put his stamp on on film. And, you know, there was a funny joke, and it, it it's it's funny and it's not, uh, with Ben Stein, where he's being interviewed, where what he said his theory was, he's like, you know, you know, John and I, we're a rare breed in Hollywood because we're Republicans. And... Uh, <laughs> And I mean, it's a joke, but it's, it's, it's serious at the same time. And, uh, and I'm not saying that's why, but I'm saying it, it, Ben Stein was making a joke and a point about how he felt like John got pushed out of the industry for not fitting into the group. And that's really what it sounds like happened and, and, and why he said, you know what? Fuck this. I got my money. I'm going to go get my farm and I'm going to write and I'll be happy. Right. And I think that's, well, because that's what directors are in charge of the movie from every aspect until the studio says that they're not right. Like that's the truth of it. Let's look at cursed yep. from the last episode, Wes Craven, 
That was one of the last movies he made, right? Yeah. Like it was uh, there like, at the like, end, right? Yeah, like the last three or four. Very famous director and writer at that point should be able to get an open check to do just about anything he wants, right? It's going to print money. And the studio fucked his movie. So if that could happen to Wes Craven, you can imagine what was happening to John Hughes and it like physically hurt him to have his stories altered. Yep. And that sucks that he felt that way because you do have to be a little bit more tough skin than that. And that's why he ended up retiring. But like, it also lets you see how much he cared about his characters in the story that he wanted them showed a different way. And he didn't want a director changing it, which is why he ended up directing for a while. And then he had to back down because the studio was telling him. And I guess it was just an easier pill to swallow, to write a story and let somebody else do what, what the fuck ever, than deal with the stress of being the director and then being told you have to change shit. Yep. It's a cutthroat business, man. But I had a lot of fun doing this episode. There's plenty of other John Hughes movies that I would love to cover. So maybe we'll have to visit him again, like a lot of other directors. Hell, yeah. maybe we can do it at the same time next year. Yeah, hey, that'd be cool. But that's it for the John Hughes episodes. You guys are going to have to tune in on the next episode where we cover which films. Which films. Exactly. As usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbspodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbspodcast. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys on the next one. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.